VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, May the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. And, of course, the 24th of May, we just celebrated or took a holiday on Monday for Victoria Day. And, of course, today is actually Queen Victoria's birthday, born on the 24th of May, 18. 18- 19, and you heard Brian Medore in the newscast mention that us struggling Jays fans watching the team unable to get a key hit at a key moment rattled off 27 hits last night in Tampa Bay, won 20 to 1. Yeah, okay. It's actually an interesting story in baseball today. On the 24th of May of 1935, so more than five decades after the incandescent light bulb became a reality, waiting for technological advances, economic necessity, and a few driving forces behind putting baseball under the lights. So it was tonight, or pardon me, May 24th, 1935, the first night game in Major League Baseball history was played at Cincinnati's Crossley Field. The hometown team beat the Phillies 2-1. So actually that evening at 8.30 p.m., President Franklin D. Roosevelt threw a ceremonial switch at the White House in Washington, and the lights went on in Cincinnati. Here's a quote coming from the late Red Barber. He was the Reds broadcaster at the time. He actually won the Ford Frick Award in 1978. As soon as I saw the lights come on, I knew they were there to stay. The lights were perfect. There were no shadows. Everything was lovely. In the ballpark that night, over 20,000 fans were cheering on the teams, the third largest crowd of the season for the struggling Reds, financially struggling, Average attendance for the Cincinnati home games at that time was around 2,000 in the day, over 20,000 for the first night game ever, and of course, here to stay, and rightfully so. All right, yesterday, a couple of mentions of some Mount Everest-related matters. I don't know what, I'm infatuated with Mount Everest for a variety of reasons, some good, some bad. So there was records set recently by non-Sherpas and Sherpas. It was on this date in 2001, the youngest person ever to scale Mount Everest was a 15-year-old Sherpa named Temba. Okay. So we all know the place is up to your neck in garbage and litter. The Outer Ring Road, unfortunately, will have to be closed again. Most of the garbage, we assume, comes from the back of vehicles as they make their way to Robin Hood Bay. So on this Sunday, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., there will indeed be a closure from uh, Kemout Road to the Logie Bay Interchange so they can clean it up. So be warned. All right. Stick with the roads. and We know the Outer Ring Road is a veritable racetrack. Always is. And so... With this whole speed camera pilot program that's going to be coming into place as of the 1st of June, it's only going to be in Paradise and Mount Pearl. A couple of curious things. So apparently the city of St. John's didn't even know this was on the go. When they caught wind of it, met with the province, just to be told that Paradise and Mount Pearl had already been selected for this pilot, and so St. John's is out. Okay. Unbelievably, there's at least 10 emails since we spoke about it yesterday that it's some sort of communism well, it's, it's not communism. And it's been in place across the country for decades. One of the curious features, and I think people are rightfully pointing out a couple of things. What happens if and when you have an unreadable license plate? I guess nothing will happen. And inside this pilot project, there's not even going to be any tickets issued. They're going to simply send the speeder a warning letter in the mail to which that's simply going to get a giggle and thrown in the recycling. 
So I'm not so sure why we're not going to issue t- tickets right off the bat, especially since the province says, Minister Stoodley says, that speeding is curbed by, what is it, the number? Some 30%, she says, based on the data collected elsewhere. So to reduce speeds, reduce accidents, reduce potential deaths. Oh, she says reduce speeds from 30 to 50%. So if we know that to be true, based on other jurisdictions and the data they've compiled, not so sure what the holdup is in issuing tickets, but some people are quite pleased that it's coming and hopefully will slow folks down. Others, not happy about it at all. Anyway, you want to take it on? Let's go. All right, so it's the home stretch for the K-12 system. You know, always going to be questions. There was another dust-up in the House of Assembly yesterday about Frank Roberts Jr. High, and you know the stories emanating from that school built in 1969, over 660 students in the school now. No cafeteria, can't fit a whole classroom inside the science lab and all the issues with the mold and rodents and the rest of it. And if you're someone who wants to, st- wants to talk about it, let's go. And also inside the home stretch for K-12, still some people out there, maybe it's the old school thought, if it's not what it was like when I went to school, and that includes me, for how we were assessed. Now, there's, I'm sure, been advancements, modernization about how we evaluate where a student is, how they absorb the curriculum, how they're able to regurgitate or to answer questions to display what they've understood or what they've learned this school year. So we don't really do it anymore in that form or fashion. You know, you don't memorize your times tables. There's no public exams. Some parents, and I understand exactly where they're coming from because I'm still a little bit confused about what we are gleaning or learning when we try to figure out what a student knows, where that student is in preparation for the next grade. But this next story, I think, Regardless of where you stand, regardless if you have a child in the K-12 system, no matter who you are or where you are in the province, this is absolutely galling. This was access to information requests put in by the Churchill family. So they fought the good fight on behalf of their son Carter, went all the way to the Human Rights Commission, and I guess Brian was talking about this in the news. I was distracted during that last newscast. They have found out through that access that over the course of seven years, the province paid in legal fees just about $700,000, just about a half a million dollars alone in 2022. So we know the decision made by the Human Rights Commission and the awarding of $150,000 to the Churchills. But let's just think about this. With all the needs and the wants, for regardless of who you are or where you are, $700,000 to defend the indefensible is ludicrous. How and why did anyone think that this was worth pursuing? It wasn't the Churchill's fault that the province said we have an inclusive model of education, yet their child sat in silence for years. People knew about it. Maybe they didn't care about it. Maybe there wasn't human resources to do better, but it's not the Churchill's fault. It's not Carter's fault. It's not anybody's fault who's sitting in a classroom with some exceptionality needing certain accommodations or supports. If the province wants to pretend that we have an inclusive model, then they need to staff it appropriately. So for the life of me, it just doesn't make sense that there wasn't a quick acknowledgement, yes, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Churchill, we know we're doing what we can. Here's the plan. Give us some benchmarks, some thresholds that we tick off. But no, decided to spend about $700,000 in legal fees to fight what should have never been a circumstance to begin with. So again, you have to wonder about how much money we could have spent inside the world of training American Sign Language teachers, of addressing the teacher shortage, of dealing with the substitute teacher shortage, to deal with the schools that are having a hard time recruiting full-time permanent staff in more rural, remote parts of the province. You know, we have these conversations in healthcare, not so much in education. And 
no matter, again, if you have kids in the system or wherever you live in this province, if we don't get it right in education, then all the rest of our concerns regarding infrastructure and uh, public policy and the justice system and the potholes and whatever concerns you, this has got to be a priority. Now, I know government understands the issues surrounding the importance of quality education in the K-12 system, but it's badly broken. You know, even if you just look at the gaps, some of the same stories we hear uh, September after September. Last year, my child had this type of support required because of whatever. Then you go back to school and the support is not there. They knew the child was coming back. So how does this ever happen? And again, the province says it's an inclusive model. If we don't conduct it as an inclusive model, then we're going to have more and more of these circumstances pop up, unnecessarily so. So the question then becomes, with this human rights decision, which I think is precedent-setting, what steps have been made to address these shortcomings, these gaps? I'm not so sure anything's really been done, but the, the province acknowledged, I suppose, that they were at fault here, I guess is the right way to put it, but imagine spending all that money on that stuff. It's just really something else. Okay, moving on. Talked yesterday about some lessons to be learned in the kindergarten to grade 12 system regarding food security, food production. Uh, Succeed, an organization that's put hydroponic kits in classrooms in Labrador. Terrific stuff. And on that front, we're going to get a, a report from the Auditor General regarding food inspection, the process here in the province. I'll be curious to see what comes of that. But speaking of Labrador, Jordan Brown, the member for Labrador West, is speaking about what he saw and many of us saw at the past weekend's Bloc Québécois Convention. And their, their leader, Yves-Francois Blanchet, addressing his party supporters, talking about federal sovereignty. For one thing, it's unbelievable that we even federally fund members' offices that represent the Bloc Québécois when they simply don't have the nation's best interests at heart. I'm sure I'll take a few swats from our friends in Quebec, but so be it. And this is all about the border between Quebec and Labrador. This has been settled for a long time. It does have an interesting history. So the issue arose in 1904, and this was all, pardon me, 1902, all about the fact that the government of Newfoundland issued a timber license on the Churchill River. A couple of years later, Quebec went to Ottawa and asked for it to be presented in front of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London. And of course, only Canada and Newfoundland were admitted as parties to the case. Quebec had no direct representation, but of course we weren't part of Canada at that point. So the dispute dragged on and on. 1922, Canada and Newfoundland agreed to ask the Privy Council to decide only, quote, the location and definition of the boundary as, uh, between Canada and Newfoundland in the Labrador Peninsula under the statutes, orders in council, and proclamations. A panel of five judges was struck. In 1927, the Privy Council made the final ruling. Now, there was some interesting times in between. In 1774, Labrador was transferred by statute to Quebec. But in 1809, it was re-annexed to this province. In 1825, the coast of Labrador west of a line extending due north from the Bay of Blanc-Sablon to the 52nd parallel of latitude, once again restored to the lower Canada, that meaning Quebec. Then enshrined. When we joined Confederation in 1949, talk about something being settled. Joint Confederation in 1949, the boundary in Labrador was confirmed in the terms of a union, now called the Newfoundland, now the Newfoundland Act, enshrined in the Constitution Act of uh, 1982, the end. But yet, even in some school books, in classrooms in Quebec, they make it look like Labrador is part of Quebec. It really does make it difficult to deal with such absurdity, this clown show. 
So when we talk about the necessity, whether people like it or not, we've got built-in, baked-in relations with the province of Quebec, whether it be with the ongoing issues regarding hydro, whether it be with the expanse of the Labrador trough and mining interests that we share. We know people have a built-in resentment of the province of Quebec, basically because of the Upper Churchill, but other issues. And the way Quebec is treated by the federal government much differently than other provinces and territories across the country. But this is probably small potatoes, but it does seep into the emotions of the headspace. So how does the government actually use this? Like, is this another stick to bring to these types of discussions? Does it belong on Premier Legault's desk? Or is it simply just another feature of the Black Québécois and some of the sovereign issues that they use to rile up their base of support versus any pragmatic, realistic issue that's still up for debate? Because it's not. It's over. Anyway, Jordan Brown's frustrated. They've never even run a candidate in Labrador. They've never made an official visit to Labrador. They don't know anything about Labrador. So anyway, I know that's not the top of the heap for anybody. But anyway, we do have to do some stuff with Quebec. This stuff makes it more difficult for many listening to the show this morning. How are we doing out there, Dave? All right, let's get this going. We've talked about this issue many times in the past, and it's worsened in recent years. And that's the level of ho Canadian household debt. So a new report coming from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. All right. They talk about the highest level of debts, household debt. It's the highest in the G7. Even some countries that have seen similar circumstances have seen it ease, whether it be in the UK or in Germany or what have you. Here we go. Here's some numbers. Household debt now sits at 107% of Canada's GDP. What? Canada's household debt is more than the entire nation's GDP. Unbelievable. In 2008, Canadian household debt was 80% of the GDP, rose to 95% by 2010, and eclipsed 100% during the pandemic. The U.S. fell from 100% of GDP in 2008 to about 75% in 2021. So this is a lot about the affordability inside the housing market. The average price of a detached home in this country as of April of last, uh, m last month pardon me, was $744,600. So there's lots of reasons why. There's been some controls put in with foreign ownership in the recent past. That should help. There's some superheated markets, much different than, say, for instance, in Atlantic Canada, the notables, the Vancouver's, the Montreal's, Toronto's, Calgary's, and the like. There is an issue regarding the surge in immigration, no doubt about it. So we can have lofty goals. The government talks about 1.5 million immigrants in the course of three years, all the while dealing with a very serious housing issue and a very serious debt load issue. Now, the willingness for people to take on debt inside their own home is not necessarily to be blamed on the government, but housing and controls over housing and prices and what levers can be pulled and what can be done, we don't need them interfering in full because my home is worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for it. But anyway, that's probably a pretty big issue. They do go on to point out that it's not just about lines of credit or credit card debt or outstanding loans. About three-quarters of the average Canadian's household debt is directly associated with their mortgage. And they kind of talk about, you know, there is, people do set goals in this life, and for a lot of folks it would be to own your own home, which comes with a lot of less than glamorous tasks, back-breaking work like I just had to do in my own backyard this past weekend. It does come with a sense of pride, but the, here's a direct quote coming from the Bank of Canada. We need to create a situation in which if you're 35 years old, you're married, you have two kids, and you're renting, there's nothing wrong with you. And, of course, that's absolutely right. There is nothing wrong with you. All right, let's get to the last one before we get to the break. 
Yesterday, for many Canadians, including me, anxiously awaiting the preliminary report coming from David Johnston, of course, former Governor General and the Prime Minister Trudeau's appointed Special Rapporteur, talking about foreign interference, specifically China's interference in the 2019 and 2021 elections. It was really something else to watch. So in many quarters of the country, David Johnson will get a lot of respect and a lot of faith, and people have placed a lot of trust in him. But I don't think at this moment in time it's enough for David Johnson, regardless of his status or stature in this world, to simply say, trust me. There's too much on the line here. The key focus would have been on recommendations regarding whether or not there should be public inquiry, and he recommends against it. says more public hearings will take place. Now, many people probably don't know the distinct difference between those two tools. You know, in a public inquiry, with a judge at the helm, the ability to subpoena witnesses and documents, people see that as the most luxurious item on the menu, the highest price, and they want it. And there's good reason to want it. So he talks about the way that intelligence is shared, and there's certainly some problems there. He talks about the media's role in some of the half-informed stories that were reported. talks about trying to find the leakers. And even in a public inquiry, there still would be tons of classified information that we would never see. But there would indeed be a panel struck to evaluate whether or not certain information can be discussed in the public realm, or whether some of it can be moved off to what they call an in-camera uh, portion of testimony. But no public inquiry. This, the Prime Minister then, on the heels of it, talked about all the things they've done since that the, they came to government in 2015. The creation of some certain public entities, you know, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, and all members should be, all parties should be represented on that committee, I would suggest. The National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, that's all fine. But with the distinct gaps and with public distrust, and whether or not it's because of what's happened in this country or what's happened with our neighbor south of the border, I think it'd be a political miscalculation to not have a public inquiry. And it's not going to happen. People who are on the fence, you know, liberal supporters who are all in, they'll be fine with this. Every conservative voter will be outraged by this, whether it be who David Johnston is and his tangential relationship with the Trudeau family up and down the line. So they will see a further seed sowed of distrust in this government and in the integrity of our elections. So again, we're not going to see every single thing, even in a public inquiry. But I don't think any of the liberals say now is going to gain them one single vote that they already don't have locked down, regardless of the issues of the day. So if there's another report coming from David Johnson in October, what we're going to learn further? Probably not a whole lot. One key area, though, was about, you know, there was, talk about the 11 candidates. So he says there was no documented financial support of seven liberals and four conservative candidates inside that number of 11. They do talk about this guy, Han Dong, and we know that he was raked over the coals. He left the Liberal Caucus of his own doing. Now they're talking about whether or not he was encouraging the Chinese government through the Chinese consulate about releasing Michael Korvig and Michael Spavor back in February 2021. Eventually they were released. Of course, that was retaliation over the... Uh, uh, capturing of Huawei executive on an extradition warrant from the United States. So he says in his evaluation that Han Dong had done nothing wrong on that front. And the stories associated with Mr. Dong's relationship with the Chinese consulate, to the extent where he discussed the release of two Canadians unlawfully imprisoned in China, he says it didn't happen. But I don't think it's enough at this moment in time, 
given the state and the status and the mindset of Canadians, regardless of how you are extreme or moderate, involved, casual observer, I don't think this is going to cut, it's not going to cut it for Canadians. I don't think, even liberals in their very quiet moments must think, this is not going to help. A political calculation, yes, but also an uh, obligation to Canadians to do whatever has to be done. You can create whatever agencies you want. And I do believe that we're not going to learn a whole, whole lot more through a public inquiry, but it's the optics of people taking it serious. It's the optics of people t being taken to task. And if you want to take it on, you know what to do. Right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite when you join us live on the air. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Annette, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Happy Victoria Day. Ha, <laughs> the same to you. Uh, I'm calling now regarding the closing of the food bank uh, that's out behind Corpus Christi Church, or what was Cor Corpus Christi Church, on Waterford Bridge Road. Uh -huh. And um, <clears throat> I saw it on TV last night, and I, I'm wondering why an alternative site for that food bank wasn't found before they closed it. Uh, because that food bank has been there these years and years. And now it was announced that they're going to set up an emergency number so people can call. That's not a solution for a food bank. People like to see what's there. Well, and of course, uh, you know. God, I mean, and you know, the people who are setting up this number, or government, or whoever it is, I'd like for them to have to depend on a food bank just for two days and see how they'd feel. Now, the, the excuse is they couldn't find a place to set it up. That parking lot across the street from Corpus Christi Church on Waterford Bridge Road, there's nothing on that on weekends. Some kind of a something could have been set up for a couple of days a week whereby people could go even to get on a truck or look at what food was there for what they needed. How hard do you think government tried to fix that? Well, I don't know. I do know that uh, Councillor Jamie Korab was involved. There was many people in the community involved, certainly the organizers at uh, St. Vincent de Paul Food Bank themselves, went to a bunch of people, including me, to try to help them find a space for, you know, 1,000 square feet up to 1,500 square feet. The problem with setting up anything temporarily and or to build something is that the food bank has nothing. They have no money. They can barely uh, satisfy the needs of the, some 200 people that come through their doors each month. So it would have required, whether it be the municipal government or the province or somebody to step in financially because that organization, they just simply do not have the resources to do anything but hope for a free space to move their, their shelves and their foods and their volunteers to. Yeah, I understand that too. But, you know, government should come across with something. But when you look at, I listened to all your announcements this morning and stuff. When you look at the money that's been wasted and thrown away, really, at times, you know, it wouldn't take a lot to build a little food bank out in that area. There's a place for disposable garbage up by the Waterford. There's, there's, the, the, the spaces are there. But I wonder how strong the will is. 
there for people who need to have a food bank. And boy, there are lots of them. Well, the numbers are growing uh, exponentially right across the country. Just a quick thought based on your, your comments this morning, Annette, is let's say government jumped in and did something to replace St. Vincent de Paul or organize some space for them or whatever the case may be. There's also a thought that runs through my mind that we're just simply allowing government to use what was a one-off, the creation of food banks across the country. Now it's become a permanent feature, which I have always and long called a distinct failure in governance. If they just replace food bank with space, then they're just allowing the issue of the reliance on food banks to continue. I mean, the people who are struggling to put food on the table is an absolute crisis by any definition of the word. Governments mobilize in times of crisis, whether it be things like wildfires in Alberta or flooding and devastation after a post-tropical storm Fiona or whatever else in this world. But we don't mobilize on the crisis that is food insecurity when we absolutely should. Food banks should not be the reality for four or five million Canadians annually. It should not be the case. I agree with you 100%, but it is the case. But it is the case, yeah. Yeah, this is it. But, you know, no, it's uh, it's very disappointing to think that there, there wasn't a little bit more background work to find where a place could be. And then Vincent Paul could take it over. We give donations to our church to Vincent Paul. Most of the churches do. Salvation Army people give donations to their food banks, you know, um, so that we don't have to depend on government. But we do have to depend on government to get a piece of land. That's true at this and, moment in time because, you, you know, many people went right through their Rolodex with people in the business world and commercial real estate and up and down the line and just simply no luck couldn't find it you know i mean it is a big ask to ask for 1500 square feet of free space for the long term but they closed their doors or i think the doors closed friday maybe and that's it 200 people will now have to find uh, other emergency outlets for food it's you know in some respects i guess it's heartbreaking it is heartbreaking and i'll just finish by saying i hope the people who close the doors on them you know (laughs) I'd like for them to to, get, to go in the shoes of the people who are depending on food banks and uh, and see what it's like. And as far as an emergency number is concerned, that's crazy. That doesn't even make any sense because people like to see what's on the shelves and see what they need before they start phoning up about, can I get two tins of beans or do you have any tin milk or whatever. I mean, it doesn't make one bit of sense. So I hope that people's consciences will start to torment them a little bit. And anybody that got a little bit of land, give it. So there's something to be done about it. Appreciate the time, Annette. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, before we go to the break, let's go to three. Good morning, Michelle. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Thanks very much for making the time this morning. Happy to do um, so I'm calling in about a, um, a GoFundMe a fundraiser for my son, actually. So my son, his name is James Noftal, and he's 17 years old. Um, he's a grade 12 student at Holy Heart. And he has just uh, recently earned a spot on the under-18 Team Canada rugby team. Um, so they have a, uh, a big tournament coming up in Amsterdam this summer, and he'll be away for two weeks. Um, and uh, so this is a pay-to-play event. So James, um, just a little bit of background, he found the sport of rugby two years ago when he was in grade 10. Um, a friend of his invited him to join or to try out the uh, 
team at school, and he just fell in love with the sport. And at the time, um, his now coach, Morgan Lovell, said to him, you know, you, uh, he identified him and said, you have a lot of potential and talent, and you could go far with the sport if you put the work in, So, um, which was very motivating for James. <laughs> it was a bit of a challenge. Um, and he has put the work in. He's put in countless hours, both in the gym and on the field over the past couple of years. And he's actually earned um, earned a scholarship for UBC. He'll be moving to Vancouver in August um, and earned a spot on their rugby team and the Thunderbirds, which are the highest-ranking university rugby team in the country. So he's really uh, worked very hard for these opportunities that are being presented to him. And, of course, as a working middle-class family, we do absolutely everything we can to support him um, in all of his endeavors but these um these pay to play events they get quite costly after a while <laughs> oh yeah so, look i know yeah. i've seen james play he's a fine player and he's really bulked up in the last couple of years and to get a spot on canada's u18 team to play at the four nations tournament in amsterdam is a massive accomplishment as is getting a scholarship to play rugby at ubc but british columbia long been the hotbed of the most elite rugby clubs you know add in some of the peppered uh, throughout atlantic canada and of course in central canada so James is a tremendous player, and this would be a great experience and exposure for a young player like James to get down to that uh, Amsterdam tourney. I've seen the GoFundMe. I think there's a goal set at $4,000. Last time I looked, you were right around $2,000, so still a way to go. Yes, that's right. Thanks so much, Patty. Yes, yeah, so we're halfway, about halfway there, and, you know, friends and family have been very supportive, and we're very grateful. So we're just trying to get the word out to the broader community now, anyone who is interested in supporting him this way um, to help make this happen. Uh, they're welcome to email me at naftalmichelle at gmail.com, uh, and I can forward the link to them for the GoFundMe. And um, anyone who is uh, who's interested, we, we welcome any support at all. Yeah, and the GoFundMe is pretty easy stuff, too. If you just go to their site and type in Newfoundland rugby player James Noftal, you'll get it as well. So, right. yeah, let's see if yeah. we can't give him a leg up uh, because, you know, I played and I'm around the Swallers Club and it becomes yeah. entrenched in your veins. There's something about it. <laughs> and Morgan Lovell is a terrific guy and an excellent coach. He really is. He's really brought out the absolute best in James over these past couple of years. And the Swallers community, just so supportive. Um, and it really is in James' blood. As a mother, it's a hard game to watch. Yep. <laughs> but we kind of, you know, but, you know, he just loves it. He's so passionate. He wants to take it as far as he possibly can. And hopefully that will mean um, heading to Amsterdam now this summer as well. <laughs> Let's see what we can do. I, I don't have a whole lot, but I'm going to hop on the site during the 10 o'clock news and see if we can't help James get where he's going. Yeah, I mean, Morgan and the commitment around that club, whether it be, you know, between Noel Brown and Pat Parfrey, and of course Simon Blanks was there for a long time as one of the provincial coaches. Yeah. They just, they really do put in a massive effort. And rugby, one thing about it, you get exposure. And this is not to slight any coaches in other sports, but there's no coaching at the high level in rugby that you get anywhere else. It's really no. something else. And the opportunity to travel the world, and as a parent, you're right, sometimes I do kind of cringe a little bit when they're heading into the rock for full steam, like when Jack yeah. Clayton had a chance to travel the world. I loved it, but I always had that yeah. little pang of nervousness behind me as well, just like you, Michelle. So yeah. I, I appreciate this. Keep us in the loop about where it stands. Send me an email with updates, or I'll check in when I can. 
for sure. Thank you so much, Patty. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye, Bye. Bye Michelle. Yeah, the rugby community, I mean, they raise a lot of money, and it is costly to travel. Of course it is. It gets subsidized somewhat by Newfoundland Rugby and or the Swilers or whoever's involved, and there's other great rugby clubs in the province as well. So young James is a fine player. Uh, make no mistake, if you get a scholarship to play rugby at the University of British Columbia, that says it all. You're obviously a fine player. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> Patty, uh, I'm going to talk about the fishery again. Um, the last time I was talking to you, we did not have crab fishery, and today we do. Um, but I just want to talk about a couple of issues regarding the crab fishery. Um, one, first of all, is um, uh, a program that CNL launched five or six weeks ago, and then the tie-up occurred, and uh, it's called the Pot-to-Plate Program, and I don't know if you're familiar with it or yeah, to Ryan. Yeah, we had Pamela on about it, I'm pretty sure. Okay, Pamela, okay. Anyway, it's just a reminder of that program uh, because it's going to try and get off the ground again now. And I'm speaking here as an adversary, but I'm also on the board of directors of CNL. So, um, and uh, that program is a chance for, uh, and I'm probably repeating some of what Pam told you when she was talking to you, but as a fresh reminder, it's a program that enables will enhance fishermen if they want to sell some of their crab locally. Uh, the logistics of it uh, is, uh, to my understanding anyway, and uh, Ryan, I'm sure, got more details and or Pam, is that CNL will kind of set harvesters up with any potential buyers and so on. And uh, it's not intended to replace the processors in Newfoundland is just intended to give uh, an harvester a chance that if he wants to sell 100 pounds, 200 pounds, 300 pounds, whatever the case might be, locally uh, for a higher price than the receiving harvesters, but of course it won't be a shoreable earnings. That's understood. Then they got that option. So just a reminder on that program. Yeah, and now the board, I think it was unanimous across the board to set the price at five bucks a pound, but of course the harvesters will be allowed to ch- charge whatever they deem fit, but that's the number I remember is five bucks a pound, right? Yes, that's correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's that. And the uh, other thing uh, I want to bring up is, of course, some of the leftover uh, ramifications or whatever of the tie-up, right? Look, the tie-up, in my opinion, and I've made no secret of it, uh, accomplished nothing. We're, we, we're still fishing for 220 a pound, which we all agree is a low price, but the market is the market. And uh, uh, the, the tie-up is, is, in fact, as hurt, or as hurt harvesters, in particular, those who got a lot of crab to get in. And we invested millions of dollars in most cases to acquire extra crab quota, like myself and my son. But we're not the only ones in that situation. Um, because now it's very unlikely we're going to get all that crab out of the water, especially the guys who have five or 600,000 pounds of crab or in excess of that to get out. So the tile has led to that dilemma. 
and uh, it has also led to a lot of hard feelings. And, and... Yeah, you're, you're breaking up a bit, Terry, unfortunately. You know, and getting the crab in, there isn't even part of the deal as to how the trip limits are going to work. So there's still lots left to be understood and decided here. The negotiations continue. I uh, can't hear Terry any longer. DFO, uh, and of course, that. Terry, let's see if we can wiggle around left to right a couple of paces and see if we can't get a bit of a better connection. No luck. So, uh, Dave, I'm going to put him on hold, and you pick up and see if we can't get Terry to uh, get to a better spot. Uh, let's go. Where am I going? One, okay. Line one it is. Rob, you're on the air. Top of the morning to you, Patty. Same to you. I just wanted to uh, chime out about the, uh, the the speed cameras going up and stuff like that. Sure. Like, you know, Newfoundland is always lagging behind the rest of everybody else. Um, speed cameras, like you said on, on your preamble and you said yesterday, they've been around for decades. And they work. And um, I don't know why people are in an uproar about it. And I don't know why they have to do a pilot project. That's That's just stupid to waste the money on a pilot project get it in place but don't just do it in a couple areas like that like they need to put them on the overpasses on the highway and everything like that they need to get them out there yeah i mean look i think some people have a negative reaction to because that's just part and parcel with where we are these days you know it's really quite cut and dry in some corners if it's something like if you're sick of the liberals or you hate the liberals or whatever whatever they say is stupid and that's just going to be the way some people react and you know but some people take to extent like i can't believe how many emails i got telling me that speed cameras are communism i mean there are speed cameras in very conservative provinces and long have been i don't know about the data whether or not it reduces speeds and the potential for collisions from 30 to 50 percent but i guarantee you when i've driven places where i see a sign saying speed camera i slow down <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah, so, no, exactly. And and but that's the whole thing too. Is like, you know, they're saying, well, we're going to put a speed camera here, here, and here. Why announce that? Just put speed cameras in the area. Don't say where they are because then you're going to get vandalism on them, everything like that. Just say there's speed cameras. Um, you don't know where they're going to be. They've got all these. You know, we got the weather towers, weather cameras, and everything like that. Put them out in the highways. That's where they need to be. Is on the highways too. Because you got the morons out there traveling at 150, 170, whatever. And, you know, that's where it needs to be done, too. Yeah. Now, uh, the Ottering Road in Pitts Memorial, I'm surprised they're not involved here. If I'm not mistaken, there's actually a legal requirement to indicate that there are speed signs. I'm pretty sure that's the way it goes in Alberta, is that I think it's X yes. amount of distance before the speed camera hits. You have to put a sign up so the traveling public knows that they're entering that zone. Yeah, but, like, all you need to do is, like, okay, if you're entering St. John's, where the St. John's sign is, yeah, just put, yeah, speed cameras are inactive, are active here. <laughs> That's it. People know. You know, but they, you know, and, like, I'm, I'm just saying, like, Newfoundland drivers are pretty bad for speed um, and aggressive driving. I've, you know, I've, I've traveled across this country, like you have, too. And um, I find it, I find it here. They're more aggressive, way more speed here, and the roads aren't good. <laughs> yeah, the roads certainly aren't conducive to the rate of speed that people are willing to drive. We're, we're just too aggressive, and you know, I drive primarily around the city and surrounding area. I'll never. 
no, I'll never understand what the hurry is to get to the next red light, because that's basically no. what we're doing. Yeah, and and like you know, I've I've said this before. Like you know, you're 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 driving up the highway, you're doing 100, 110, which is normal, and you've got somebody riding up your butt, you know, so close that like if you have to stop for any reason, a moose, whatever, um, you're going to get creamed. Somebody's going to ram you, and you're going off into the ditch, and people are going to get hurt, and that's what's happened. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, it's too bad it takes speed cameras, but that's the reality in many parts of the world, many parts of this country. So hopefully they're effective because that's what I want to have. You know, I don't really care about how they're going to compile data or what have you. I just would be much happier and would remove some of the pit in my stomach when my wife or my children hit the highway in particular. I appreciate the comments, Rob. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, no, I just um, just put them all out all over the place under the underpasses the overpasses everything like that just get them out there and stop with this pilot project like not you know finding people just do it <laughs> let's just do it appreciate this rob thank thank you okay have a good day you too bye-bye Bye. all right so let's take a break uh, when we come back we're going to wrap up our conversation with terry ryan and then we're going to be speaking with you don't go away and welcome back let's wrap up our chat on eight with terry terry you're back on the air Yes, good morning again, Patty. Sorry, but Aaron, beautiful golfer time this morning, and I must have struck a little blackout, Aaron. Um, anyway, I don't know how much you heard of what I was saying. But, uh, we were finished with the pot, and, pot to plate program, I think we were. We were, and then we were talking about how it's going to be difficult to get all the crab in, especially if you have a big quota. Yes, and uh, so what I started to say that you, you couldn't hear was that uh, one of the main architects of this tile uh, was Jason Sullivan, and uh, he, uh, you know, led, organized a number of protests. One, one of the protests, uh, uh, the leader of the ASP, Jeff Lauder, commented on last night on the news and again this morning on VLCN News, was the protest that was at the uh, hotel where they were trying to have negotiations regarding the formula and other things. So I see him as the main architect of getting us in the mess we're going to be in now for getting our crab out of the water for the same price we could have got six weeks ago. And uh, he, he's, in my opinion, he's come, come, become completely hinged. His, his goal is to become... Uh, to try and keep some kind of popularity amongst a number of voters uh, uh, to become president of a union that he, he, he wants to destroy and don't and is completely crapping on and uh, and everything else so I, I, I know the dichotomy the irony of that is beyond my thinking you know but is not uh, his right to do so people can believe him or trust him or uh, ignore him at their ple- at their pleasure of course it is, it is right. It's also my right to give my opinion about him, um, which I'm doing now. And, uh, you know, he's, he's he, even as recently as he, he never got his way on the thing. I mean, he was preaching, you know, we're going to get a higher price come first of May, especially Mother's Day. The market is going to improve. He was preaching like he knew uh, as much as the Lord Almighty knows about what the marketplace is going to do. So he failed in that. Now, as recently as yesterday, he tried to get another argument going over uh, another fallacy that this 20% tolerance of uh, crab, you know, where you, if you have uh, 
uh, 20% or less of less than four inch crab, you'll still get paid for that particular trip for the, the full price as if you had 100% four inch or greater crab. And the union quickly put out a release on that last night showing that he's wrong there. Nothing has changed. We got the same system there. We've had for years and years and years. And, and I'm no lover of the leadership of the union either, which I've said before. But that man is completely unhinged, and in my opinion, and he don't care about the harvester. He don't care about anything. All he cares about is becoming president of a union that he's, he, want, he wants to destroy. There is, you know, so I can't understand him. I don't understand. Uh, yes, I do understand his rationale because I know his only goal is to become president and do whatever I can and ride roughshod over whoever I can to get to that. Uh, position and God help us. In my opinion, if he becomes a leader, he can't even take criticism on his own farm. He'll boot you off. So what a great leader that would be! You know. So anyway, we're in a bit of a mess now. We'll get some crab out of the water. Uh, uh, people who got small quotas, they'll probably get it all out of the water. And like I will, inshore. I mean, I only got a small quota, but offshore boats, a lot of them won't. That have invested millions of dollars over the years. And it's thanks to Jason Sullivan. So, you know, uh, that's the essence, really, of what I, I wanted to say. Sure, but, I mean, Jason Sullivan, on the outside looking in, I think it was pretty loudly supported by Mr. Spingle, Mr. Pretty, and others who are actually in executive positions at the FFAW. I don't think anything was accomplished. Uh, I mean, look no further than the price. Uh, yes, anyway. uh, the, the, Mr. Spingle and Mr. Pretty supported Jason Sullivan through their non-action. And I said that before. They they should have come out yesterday. They kind of threw Jason Sullivan under the bus yesterday, Mr. Privy did, on the news last night, uh, where he said, uh, you know, that uh, uh, Jason basically was responsible for the Argentia protests and, and others, that they didn't organize it. It wasn't their organization. So they, they pretty well threw him under the bus yesterday, but they should have done that weeks ago. Well, now Jason Sullivan says that he wasn't at Argentia at all. Well, maybe I don't know if he was or not, but I, the, the Mr. Privy Borlis said that he organized it, and he was at the union office protest because he was on social media, a picture of him up in the dump of the truck. Yeah, I saw that, but he says he was not in Argentina. If people choose to do what Jason Sullivan suggests or asks them to do, then there's bigger than Jason Sullivan, right? And there's lots of people on that side or that thought on this particular issue. But Terry, I got to get another one in before the news. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number five. Good morning to Sheila mckinnon Drover. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Morning, and I must say thank you to you for the service that you and the OCM provide to the community in, in allowing the discussion of issues that concern citizens and, of course, in providing a forum for public service announcements, which is why I'm calling this morning. Happy to have you on. And, of course, we've spoken about Alarsh Avalon in the past. What's the update, uh, Sheila? Well, for, for your listeners who may not know what Larsh Avalon is, Larsh Avalon and Larsh generally is an organization which supports adults with intellectual disabilities. And um, we, this weekend, this starting on the, on the 26th, on Friday, is the beginning of our annual community weekend to which everyone in the community, I mean in the St. John's community, um, not just in the Lash community, everyone is invited. Um, it's being held at uh, St. Mark's 
Anglican Church in the community hall there in the community room of the church on Logie Bay Road. So there's lots of parking and um, easy easy access and fully accessible. And people with and without intellectual disabilities are very welcome to attend. Uh, this year, uh, Patty, we have a, a person leading us, Cheryl Zink, her name is, and some people may have heard of her through the... Uh, Toronto Fringe Festival, and she's going to be uh, leading us with music and movement and uh, storytelling, and uh, it's just going to be a fun weekend. So that's Friday, from uh, Friday, May 26th, from 6 to 8 p.m., uh, and on Saturday, all day, from 10 a.m. until 3.30 p.m., and on Sunday, we clue up in the afternoon from 2 to 4.30 p.m., and uh, as I said before, everyone is welcome. And if you can't come to the whole thing, even if you want to drop in at some point on Saturday, you're welcome to do that. No registration required. Sheila, now, I think. Did for, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Patty, oh, sorry, I apologize. So, uh, adults with intellectual disabilities and their family and friends, they'll know what L'Arche Avalon does. They'll know what the experience is. They'll know what you're trying to achieve here. But if people who attend who don't have that lived experience, whether it be as an adult with an intellectual disability or they know someone with or family members of, what do you hope they take away? Well, I think that I would like them to take away the fact that whether you have an intellectual disability, and I think all of us do have some... <laughs> disabilities, uh, whether or not you have what is classified as an intellectual disability or not, that everyone should be included in our society. And that, that is the big thing. And in L'Arche, that is, that is the basic premise of L'Arche, that everyone is included. And, you know, Patty, our membership is not huge here in St. John's, but there are at least, at least a thousand adults with intellectual disabilities right here within in our immediate area and you know all of them live with parents not all of them of course but a lot of them live with parents who like they like they are getting older and uh, what happens after those parents die as we all are going to do and so that that is one of the things that we're thinking ahead for and working very hard toward and that is getting uh, building two homes. We actually have land in Pleasantville, so we're we're in the process, slow as you can imagine, but we're in the process of of moving in that direction and moving in that direction. Inside of intellectual disabilities, do you also include what people will refer to as developmental disabilities? Yes. Well, that you know that would be part and parcel of it some of some of our people with most of our people actually that are part of our particular group just happen to be to also have physical disabilities uh, but not all um, but developmental in in a whole lot of different ways but certainly in the in their intellectual uh, abilities I appreciate the time Sheila I'm a little bit late for the news so give the details the where the winds one more time I have, uh, okay, on Friday, it's at the hall at St. Mark's Anglican Church on Logie Bay Road, open to everybody, no registration required, Friday evening from 6 to 8, 
Saturday from 10 to 3.30 and Sunday from 2 to 4.30. And anyone can come and they can come at any time. And, Patty, I think I I did send a poster to to VOCM, so uh, you can look it up there and all the details are on that. And we would be happy to... uh, to see anyone who would like to join us. I appreciate the time. Good luck with the event, Sheila. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Sheila McKinnon-Drover with Larsh Avalon. Of course, Larsh is L-apostrophe-A-R-C-H-E. Let's take a break. When we come back, we talked about it off the top. Todd Churchill is Carter Churchill's father. And now, through access to information, we understand that the province spent upwards of $700,000 in defending the indefensible. Todd Churchill right after this. And then we're also going to talk about that Quebec ownership, pretend quasi-ownership of Labrador, long been decided by the Privy Council in 1927 when we joined Confederation in 49 in the Constitution in 1982. Jordan Brown, don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number three. Good morning, Todd Churchill. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? I'm pretty upset, I guess, uh, given the ATIP results we received yesterday to uh, that, you know put a number on the amount of legal resources being leveraged against my wife and I. Well, I, I've termed it or deemed it to be defending the indefensible. I mean, it's truly remarkable. The school district and everyone of right mind realizes that having a child sit in silence year over year in a school that has been labeled as inclusive is obviously and patently wrong and to know that we could have accomplished so much not only for training ASL teachers or dealing with uh, teacher shortages or creating new seats at the education school but no we fought this I mean for the two hundred seven hundred thousand dollars five hundred thousand dollars alone last year it's galling yeah, it, it is. And I think, you know, every taxpayer of this province, yourself included, your taxpayer too, you should be outraged that this is what the government prioritizes over so many things that need funding. Healthcare. I mean, you look at so many ERs are closed more than they're open. Why shorting uh, staffing, staffing shortages? But the government doesn't prioritize that. They prioritize allowing the district to spend three quarters, almost three quarters of a million dollars to fight a five year old deaf child in a wheelchair it's disgusting and the message message has been clearly you know accept the discrimination of your child or we're going to financially cripple you if you try to fight it and it's only because my wife and i stuck her heels in and and fought as hard as we did and and were determined not to let them wear us down that this actually saw the inside of a board of inquiry room and it's something that my wife and i are very proud of because it took an enormous amount of personal sacrifice financially, mentally, and physically to do that, given now what the public knows was leveraged against us, you know, $681,000. I mean, the question you'd have to ask and your listeners should ask is how many taxpayers in our province had to work really hard last year and pay their taxes to only have it wasted on a private law firm to, as you describe, defend the indefendable or undefendable? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's exactly how I think many people will hear it. And, you know, for you and Kimberly to chase it the way you did, I don't know what the percentage would be, but I would uh, guess somewhere around 1995 or 99% of people would have been worn out and not pursued it to the lengths that you did. And consequently, nothing will change. And on that front, 
I've also thought that this would be a precedent-setting decision at the Human <coughs> Rights Commission, and hopefully children with whatever exceptionality requiring whatever layer of support inside school will come to pass ASAP. To your understanding, what has changed? What moves have been made to improve not only Carter's situation, but everyone else who needs whatever type of support? And uh, even if we're challenging gifted students. So, I mean, do you have an update coming from the province or the district or Mr. Hall about what they've done, how they've absorbed this ruling? In, in terms of deaf education, nothing has changed, really. It's back to business as usual at the district. They posted a position last week for a itinerant teacher of the deaf. And again, American Sign Language is a preferred requirement. How possibly, after a board of inquiry that flagged the importance of fluency of the teacher in American Sign Language being important, and vital, vitally important, how can they now post just last week a position where it's a preferred requirement, where they say testing may be required? If you don't specify a proficiency level that's required, what are you testing for exactly? So what's, what's deemed to be a successful test? Uh, you just do it a test, and no matter what you score, you're going to be hard anyways. Uh, so nothing has been learned. It's just to, back to business as usual with Terry Hall, who it seems to me to be Tony Stack in a different rapper. And like one of the things I really, I'm going to make a personal appeal. And now that your 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 listeners have really have a full understanding and it's gone out in public of the amount of legal resources that were leveraged against us and a crushing amount of legal resources that were aimed to grind us down. I'm going to ask your listeners and make a personal appeal that every single one of your listeners go to Facebook and go to Deaf Children Matter and follow the page. It costs you nothing, but it would be a show of support to my family and my son in particular of what we endured over six years of a crushing amount of weight that was exerted against us to try to get us to stop and cancel our claim. So that's that's the appeal I'd make to your listeners, just to go on, go on to Facebook and follow Deaf Children Matter. And there's all kinds of posts and all kinds of excerpts from the Board of Inquiry for people who didn't um, follow it. And, and some of the testimony was shocking. It was really, really shocking. And, uh, you know, to spend that amount of money to, to try to defend something that wasn't defendable and, you know, Last year, you mentioned almost $500,000 was billed by Stuart McKelvey just almost la just last year. The defense seemed to hinge on blaming my wife and I. We were actually questioned during our testimony. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You know, they tr the defense seemed to be to blame the parents. And that's, that's how disgusting the defense was by the district. Not only did they spend enormous amounts of money to defend the undefendable, they actually blamed us. So, I, you know, I'd really make the personal appeal for your listeners to go to Deaf Children Matter on Facebook and just follow the page as a show of support uh, and as a demonstration to the government that the people of the province are not going to stand for this, that they're outraged by the amount of money, their money, that has been wasted. Because it's not the district's money, and it's not the department's money, it's not the government's money, it's your money, the taxpayer's money. And I think people should be really up in arms about this. So they should. Uh, Todd, I appreciate the time, and I think not only Carter, but everyone else in the school system that just needs something more. If the government is going to define our system as inclusive, they've got to follow through and make it that. It can't be simply all the children are in the same building. That's not inclusive education. That's just populating a school. Uh, I appreciate this, and uh, many people will thank you for what you and Kimberly have done. Appreciate the time this morning. Yeah, thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Man. Let's go. Leonard once. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. So this is obviously not an issue that's at the top of the priority heap, but it's frustrating, and I can't imagine the frustration that it might give you and other residents of Labrador. And we talk about this absurdity that the block get on with regarding the map. Well, it's not even the map. It's even the resolution that they had at yeah, the convention. Right? Like, like how, do you, how do you like accept something as, as, as a Labradorian? How do you accept that someone's national policy is to annex your territory? So this is this is you know it's upsetting as a Labradorian, and I find it really interesting if you just go on the comments and stuff because uh, the article did get picked up by Radio Canada, um, and, and you know call me a, a stupid newfie. Well, if if any of the sovereignists knew the actual history of Labrador, they would know I'm not a Newfoundlander. I'm actually a Labradorian, and and this is the problem I have is they they have no idea of our history, our culture, and who we are as a people, but yet they want to make it a national policy of their party to eliminate us. Yeah, not to, not to pick apart what you just said for the sake of, but you say you're not a Newfoundlander, you're a Labradorian. How does that, what does that mean? Well, I was born and raised in Labrador. Labrador is my home. Labrador is my part of my identity and my culture. You know, I, I do understand, like, we're the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, and 90% of Labradorians identify as Labradorians. People on the island you know, quoquely known themselves as Newfoundlanders. And, and there is a difference, but it's a part of our fabric. It's a part of who we are as a province as a toll. And, and I know you want to pick it apart and that, but I, I, I'm from Labrador. That's that's my identity. That's who I am. Yeah, I, I try to be uh, mindful of referencing the province as Newfoundland and Labrador, because whenever I don't, then, of course, people get quite cross. But I think you're right. Like, if you were living and working in Alberta and someone said where you're from and you were born and raised in Happy Valley Goose Bay, you say, I'm from Labrador. And if you were born and raised in St. John's, you say, I'm from Newfoundland. So I, I think that's fair, and it's not to exclude one or the other, but that's just the reality. It's interesting that they use the word annexed, or annex, pardon me, because that's exactly how Newfoundland got Labrador back in 1809, it was re-annexed to the province of Newfoundland. So they're leaning on some of the historical uh, connotations, the historical language surrounding some of the history of the establishment of that border, but it's completely nonsense. This is settled and solved. It's put away, I don't know how and why anyone thinks it's sensible or even reasonable uh, to even talk about this any further. 1927, 1949, 1982, the end. Yeah, exactly. And you want to go back and back. You know who actually went to the Privy Council to ask to to resolve this? Quebec. Quebec wrote the Privy Council. That's right. And asked them to do and, and solve this. And they just never accepted the findings. And that's fine. And, and that's their gripe. But to have a national party, I know they're sovereignists. I know they have this whole motive. But at the same time, to actually put it into their party that we're going to, when, when, we, when we win the vote, we're going to take this back. You know, it's insulting to my fellow Labradorians. Who you know we we you know we're, we're, we 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 have our gripes we have our like any other group or thing you know we grumble at government and all that but at the end of the day that this is that's our home like you you can't be like as a national thing you can't be at that you can't be saying that you know that this is what we're going to do and we don't care about you or your 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 history your heritage your culture we don't care about like this is actually one hundred percent insulting and, and I know like it, it, you know this is a you know, on the top of the list of things that's going on in our country and our province right now. But at the end of the day, I, I had to say something. I had to say that, you know, this is just insulting to me. It's insulting to the, to the people I represent and insulting to my family, uh, my fellow Labradorians and my family, that, you know, this is, this is how you think of us. And, it's, you know, everyone says, well, you know, it's just a map. It's not just a map. It's my home. That's what's different. Yeah, and you know, again, it has a couple of uh, tentacles that extend from it. 
we do indeed have ongoing relations, whether people like it or not, with the province of Quebec. And things have to be done. Business has to be conducted, whether it be hydro or mining or whatever else. So this makes it a little bit more difficult for some people who hear this story and are as frustrated as you sound this morning. So I don't know where we go, but I will add this. The block does this on purpose. And it has no basis in reality. It has no legal, legal ramifications that lean their way. It's absolute bluster and nonsense and political hyperbole. So, you know... You have to wonder why they do it, but of course they do it because their base just loves it. And they lap it up, and consequently it's another reason for them to be loyal to the bloc. No more, no less. Like, it really has no, it has no real meaning. It's just some of that stuff that you get on with at conventions so that the rank and file applaud and yell and scream and wink and nod. It's just, it's it's right up there with stupid. And they teach it in their schools, which is really really interesting too, Patty. They teach it in their schools and that too. And uh, I, you know, and I'm, I'm... from like in a past life, I, I did. Uh, I was on the tourism board in Labrador West, and I was working the tourism center one day. And uh, and 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 uh, Quebec visitors are probably one of the biggest actual tourist people that come through our region. Um, and it's just interesting when they come to the tourism information center and see like you know our map of Labrador, and they go, oh. I thought Labrador City was actually a part of Quebec. Oh, we learned in school that this was actually a part of Quebec. <laughs> and they and they had no idea that. You know, no, this was settled in 1920, and you know, and it, it's it's amazing that like it, it's just rhetoric that they keep, uh, you know, putting out there, and they don't really they don't even realize that you know there's a there's 30,000 people that live here that call this home and, and and identify differently, and it's been so long that the claim that they had on us, even though back in the 1800s, it's been so long that an entire culture and history was developed in the time that it is, and now. You know, they want to talk about protecting their culture and French heritage and culture, and that's fine. Yes, protect that. That's an important part of your culture. But it doesn't mean you have to go destroy somebody else's. Yeah. Someone just wrote me say, uh, saying, uh, isn't this best ignored? Okay, but ignoring it doesn't make it go away. <laughs> you know, it no. just means that we'll just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear too, which I get. And I've said it quite clearly off the top. I know this is not... Uh, number one priority for anybody, and I would imagine it's not number one priority for you, given the issues that you and I talk about, but it just does seep into the ongoing thoughts about Quebec's place in our confederation, our relationship with the province of Quebec, our place in confederation, so it's you know it's a little bit bigger than simply the flag kerfuffle, or pardon me, the boundary kerfuffle. And it, uh, amazingly, all stems back to 1904 about a timber license along the Churchill River. Absolutely. Amazing stuff. Uh, well, last word to you before I have to go, Jordan. And, you know, it, it, it's a conversation that we need to have, not, you know, between, you know, our relationship with Quebec. They're our neighbor. That's it. We, we can't physically move our geographical locations. No. We, have to, we, have to, we have to deal with uh, this and have a conversation with our neighbor. But maybe at the end of the day, maybe it does have to have a conversation between our province and the province of Quebec to accept that, you know what, it's time to put, you know, this to bed once and for all. And to actually have some acceptance that, you know what, this is how it's going to be, and that's it. If you want to have good relations, maybe it's time to put this to bed. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. And, you know, it's been suggested, how do we utilize this or bring this story into ongoing discussions, negotiations, whatever, on whatever front, whether it be 2041 or hydro in general or mining in the Labrador trough. I don't know if you can hang. Black Quebecois convention ridiculousness on the desk of the premier of the province whose party is the coalition of there Quebec. But anyway, and I know that'll be eye roller for some, but for some it's important. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the fallout and the report offered, the preliminary report offered by the special rapporteur, which is a fancy word for saying person, David Johnson. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. All right, let's go. Uh, line number four, Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? That's kind. How about you? Good, thanks. Good. Just before I, just before I get into my topic here of the uh, Johnston report, just listening to the MHA from Labrador, Mr. Brown, talking about the border dispute with Quebec. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I wonder what uh, the United States would do if Russia decided to include in their map of their country the state that is now Alaska. Because uh, Russia used to own Alaska at one time. And I think they sold that to the United States around 19, in 1867 for around $3 million. And eventually Alaska became uh, the 49th state of the United States. So yeah. I, wonder what, uh, I wonder what Joe Biden would do if uh, Russia de- decided to include Alaska as part of their country now. I think Mr. Biden would be going all Jesuit over Mr. Putin. Yeah, they'd be redirecting warheads. <laughs> It'd be the Ukraine war on steroids. Yeah, that's right. I think. Yeah, but, you know, who cares about borders? Yeah. Borders don't mean anything, right? Well, they kind of do, and we all know. That, you know, it's it's just bluster, but it's it's frustrating because it's been happening for so long and so often. And imagine someone from the province of Quebec in Labrador saying, what? I thought Labrador City was part of Quebec. No, but it's not. Talk about the indoctrination that people bleat on about all day long. Uh, let's talk to David Johnson. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I, I watched a part of the news conference yesterday, and uh, I think the big takeaway uh, from that is uh, I read the report. Um, things need to be done, but we can't discuss that because uh, if we try to discuss it, well, then we'd have to kill everybody who didn't have a security clearance to hear it. So, you know, it's... Uh, it kind of leaves me scratching my head. I think we have a serious problem with uh, foreign influence in our elections but, and with our intelligence services in general. Yeah, yeah, we do. It's also important to point out, and this should not be news to anybody, is that this is not just something that happened in 2019 with one country. Foreign interference, whether it be influence, information and misinformation, disinformation campaigns, maybe even financial contributions, have been happening for a very, very long time. And it extends well beyond China. The notables, once again, I mean, we can, we can and we should be talking about Russia or Iran or anybody else who's meddling in our elections. We have to protect them as best possible. So the fact that some people are telling me that, you know, it's only now under this incompetent government that this happens is just kind of silly because it's been happening for a very, very long time. Well, you're absolutely right. And uh, I think, you know, a, a full commission of inquiry would, would, uh, would uh, number one, would, uh, would, would get at the bottom of... Uh, what exactly is wrong, going wrong in our uh, intelligence uh, systems, national security systems, and what's going right? You know, uh, just a few comments that uh, Mr. Johnson made yesterday about, uh, uh, you know, intelligence going up the chain of command and there's there's gaps in the in the system and things like that. Just on its face, that 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 sounds very disturbing to me, uh, especially in the post 9/11 uh, world. I would have thought the federal government. Uh, would have uh, revamped the uh, national security apparatus and the intelligence gathering systems in this country to uh, to ensure that uh, our security and intelligence services are uh, operating at uh, 
top notch and they're playing an A game uh, 24-7. They might be playing an A game inside their day-to-day operations where there's obvious gaps is how the information is disseminated and shared. I mean, that's where the major problem lies. And, you know, I, I do think that the whole thought of public inquiry is a political exercise. Not to dispute that I think it's required. Now, I'm pretty sure that there will be tons of classified information that the public will never get their eyeballs on, but people will think the optics of transparency and a judge-led inquiry under legislation, the ability to subpoena individuals and documents, compel testimony, is very different than a public hearing, even though I'm not so sure exactly what kind of specifics we'd even hear if they called the inquiry, but, but without one, we just risk going down a path of further erosion of trust and faith in institutions. I don't care who you support as a political party, I really couldn't care less. But if we have a widespread continued erosion, that's bad for everybody. That's bad for your party, it's bad for uh, your vote, it's bad for the politician you support, it's bad for the country. So I don't think we're going to learn a whole lot more, but I think it's a worthwhile exercise. I agree, and uh, optics is very important here. And, uh, you know, a full commissive inquiry, you get the uh, a judge would have to require security clearance. To uh, hear witnesses, uh, everybody will be put under oath. Uh, all the lawyers participating in in the in the inquiry, uh, they would have the required security clearance. Uh, not all of this would be uh, in camera. Some of it would be public, but a lot of it would be in camera, and I, I'd be fine with that. But at least you know there's a mechanism mechanism in place, and there'd be guidelines set up, and uh, the final report would go to the government, and uh, hopefully the government would act on that. Um, I, I, with this. Uh, a refusal yesterday by Mr. Johnson to call a commission of inquiry. I think uh, the optics here are really, uh, really bad. <laughs> well, no you, know, it, you know, I don't know David Johnston. Of course I don't. I don't know much about the man. But I think at this moment in time, there's very few people, unless you are just so entrenched in your political ideology and leanings, that if anybody but anybody stands up and simply says, trust me, that's probably not good enough for anybody. Now, of course, there'll be some political figures and some of their supporters. That's good enough for them, but it shouldn't be good enough for any of us. You know, simply trust me is a tricky way of trying to temper the fears or the worries or the anxiety or whatever emotion people are experiencing about this stuff. But again, it's not just China. It's not just Russia. It's not just Iran. And it's not just 2019 and 2021. So we've got to spread our thoughts out a little further here to get to the bottom of it. But how they share information and, you know, focusing on the leakers. I get it. Folks, on the way the RCMP operates inside of this envelope, I get that. Even if we talk about some of the misinformation that was shared, even especially by the media, I can understand that. The issues regarding Handong and or when anybody was told about any Chinese diplomat and looking for information and or threatening Michael Chong's family, I get that. But would any of that actually be further... uh, Sean, light upon in a public inquiry? Probably not, but I think it's the right thing to do. I'll give you the final word this morning, Colin. No, I think a, a public inquiry could, uh, one of the avenues of, uh, of, of endeavor in a public inquiry would be uh, whether this country needs a foreign intelligence service. You know, we don't have one. Uh, the Americans have one. The British have one. Other allies of ours have one. Uh, I think we're flying blind here when it comes to uh, threats from overseas. Uh, any intelligence that we get, a lot of it is coming from uh, Americans and Brits, uh, with, uh, who are our allies. But uh, it's being filtered through uh, for their through their intelligence and national security uh, apparatus. And um, they may not necessarily be acting in our best interest. I think we need a foreign intelligence service, and I think a, a commission of inquiry would uh, go a long way to 
at least endeavouring to find out if we need one. Along the lines of the, the, the McDonald Commission's inquiry in the 1980s, which gave rise to, uh, to thesis, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's needed or not, but I think there's also conversations to be had about the good work, a.k.a. the terrible work, done by groups like MI6 or Mossad or the CIA because, you know, that's created a beast that is completely unstoppable at this moment in time. Uh, appreciate the time, Colin. Off we go. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right. Uh, I'm not sure who's next. Oh, yes. We're going to talk to a fellow named Andrew Bedwell. He's a 48-year-old British sailor. He's going to attempt to set a record by crossing 1,900 nautical miles of the Atlantic Ocean, separating Canada from the United Kingdom in a boat measuring one meter. Andrew Bedwell, big C, up to this. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Well, from St. John's to Cape Lazard in Cornwall, 1,900 nautical miles across the Atlantic Ocean. The British will not stand idly by and watch one of their records be stolen by an American in particular. 1993, Tommy McNally, British sailor, he set the record for crossing the Atlantic in the smallest boat ever. It was an unbelievable story. So they salvaged parts from an old closet or something, a porthole of a wash from a washing machine, and then an American took it, Hugo Velen. Now, Tommy McNally actually designed the boat that's going to be sailed across the Atlantic by the British sailor at 48 years of age. Join us on line number seven. That's Andrew Bedwell. Andrew, you're on the air. Hello there, Paddy. Welcome to the program. Hello. So, uh, describe your relationship with Tommy McNally, if there is one. Uh, there isn't one. Um, I actually got hold and spoke to um, Tom McNally's daughter, Lorraine, unfortunately after he had passed. But he had already started the design for this vessel and started the build of it, and so we've carried it on. It's amazing photos. I've seen a couple. I read an article in Villa. Uh, yes, yeah. Before we get into why you're doing it, describe the vessel. Um, so she's an exceptionally short sailing vessel. She's only just over a metre long. Um, and the reason she's just over a metre long is to break the current world record, as you mentioned earlier, um, who's held by Hugo Varlin. And uh, his record is 1.63 metres. And so what I wanted to do in the best of British tradition was actually absolutely smash the record. And um, I wanted to take half a metre off the length, but... Uh, my legs are too long, so we've uh, had to make it a little bit longer. But um, we're taking 42 centimetres off the current world record. And this, that size of vessel, I, I suppose, is all sorts of watertight uh, compartments so they can store your provisions. But I don't imagine you can lie down or get comfortable at all in this little rig, can you, uh, Andrew? No, there's certainly not a lot of comfort in it. Um, I can just about stretch my legs out well, barely stretch my legs out. So I should be mainly in the seated position, but we've got full harness in there. There's 12 watertight compartments. Um, yeah, it's just a, a, an amazing vessel, but obviously 100% designed for the challenge. I should have brought up the story that I had read, but I think this is not the first time that you've taken on these types of adventures. Circumnavigated Britain aboard, I can't remember what it was called, something 650, and then you yep. sailed, solo sailed uh, in and around Iceland, the Arctic Circle, and what have you. So what drives this? I know you have a professional relationship with the sea. I believe you're a sailmaker. So what drives this want for this type of solo adventure? Is there something in you or something instilled in you by the British Navy or your your parents or your grandfather where does this come from 
it's my parents. Um, they've uh, unfortunately both passed away. Actually, Dad only passed away last week, but um, he's installed in me and Mum as well in adventure. And as you rightly say, I have done loads of different challenges. Um, so this is definitely not the first challenge. Um, but what we've done is previous um, challenges. I've chosen not to publicise them um, and just go and do them. So this one, a lot of people think, wow, what? It's crazy, but this is kind of a pinnacle of hundreds and hundreds of other different challenges. Um, so it's only uh, just a slight further step on. So you're basically riding a buoy with a mast and a sail. It's extraordinary. So I'm really sorry to hear about the passing of your father. What was his name? Tony. Tony. Tell us about Tony. Uh, he was he was awesome. Um, best friend, best dad, everything. Um, they first introduced me to the sea in his offshore race powerboat when I was uh, six months old, tied into a inner tube. Um, just because 50 years ago there weren't many buoyancy aids for kids. So I think that probably tells you how my life started. And from then on, basically, it's just been adventure after adventure after adventure. Um, and trying to raise money for different charities and things like that. And we'll get to the charity aspect. So he was a racer in offshore powerboats. Was he also a sailor? Uh, no, he, he couldn't be bothered with sailing. It wasn't fast enough. <laughs> but, what he, but what else he did, he did represent Great Britain for motorcycle trials and things like that. So, yeah, he did lots and lots of different things. He fulfilled his life. It's wonderful, and so part of this adventure will be in his memory. And so you go off to talk about uh, youth buoyancy or what we call personal safety devices or life jackets, whatever people talk about. What are you trying to raise awareness of and funds for? Right, so well, the, which more so for the to raise awareness of is basically there's so many people that through COVID and everything like that and prior to that just didn't have any um, confidence or anything. And so people kind of, Gone, in, gone backwards on themselves a little bit. And so all we're trying to do is get people to kind of push their boundaries. Only little steps. There may be someone who can ride a mile on a bike, so we're saying ride a mile and a quarter or a kilometre and a quarter, whatever. But um, we're just trying to get it so that people actually push their boundaries um, and get out and do things. There's too many people locked up indoors and can't do things. So that's the main thing that we're trying to do. Well, in this province, not to disparage my fellow Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, our sedentary lifestyle is part of our problem. And, you know, there's no excuse with our access to the sea, albeit the unmerciful North Atlantic, and also the rugged outdoors and the amount of co coastline and trail networks that we have, we should do better, including yours truly. Uh, so to follow along, it's been all the rage, you know, not only social media, but maybe an interactive map to know where you are, how you're doing, maybe an opportunity yes. to interact with you. Yes, yeah. Um, so what we've got is we've got lots of coverage online with through Big Sea Atlantic Challenge. So that's Big Sea as in the capital C to represent cancer and things like that because my dad passed away with cancer and Tom McNally, who designed the boat and held the record, as you mentioned earlier, um, started the build on the boat. So Tom's actually coming with me. I've got some of his um, ashes that he's coming with me and I'm going to spread those as I go. So, yeah, so it's, um, it's one hell of a challenge. That it is. I just dragged up the story that I had read previously, and there's a very morbid quote at the beginning of one of the paragraphs. says, On the tomb, there are only two dates, the date of birth and the date of death. It is up to us to fill in the blanks in between. In this spirit, Andrew Bedwell picked up the baton from Tom McNally on and on it goes. That's a really fun way to set up that paragraph. Now I've got to ask you about this. Tell us about Tracy and her not very tasty, high-protein beef jerky. 
Well, we're actually making the beef jerky out here now. So the um, Great Canadian Meat Company have supplied me with the beef jerky. So in the last couple of days, we've been grinding up 210 bags, I think, of beef jerky. Um, we're out here staying with Tina Taylor, who's a, a local um, real estate agent. She's been helping us. So she's been running around all around um, St. John's, Conception Bay South and everything. Um, but the foods now, we've got it all ground. We've got the raisins. We've been and picked the raisins up yesterday. They're all ground. They're all mixed. And today we're off to pick the, um, the real nutritious bit, the beef tallow that's going to bind it all together. And that's it for 90 days. So you won't have an opportunity to bring along some of your other favorite treats, but I'm curious to get you to elaborate on this. You say, I will literally be eating the boat. <laughs> Meaning well, what? <laughs> well, <laughs> so what we've got is they, what that started off with an interview early on. And what we were doing is we had a seat in the back of the, in the boat. Um, and what we were going to do is make the seat really thin in carbon. And to make it give it its strength, we were going to mold the, the food into the back of the seat to give it its strength. But we decided in the end that that didn't really work. So we've got rid of it. So what's happening now is the meat is being prepared. It's going to be um, warmed up down, hopefully, in your sun that we've got today. I'm pleased we weren't doing it yesterday. Uh, so it's going to be warmed up, and then we're going to be molding it into the boat in separate, completely separate sealed bags. So I can literally get as much food in the boat as possible. And the boat, when it leaves um, uh, St. John's, it is going to be rammed full. And it's going to be looking its worst because it's going to be down in the water. But it's got three months' worth of supplies because I'm not having any outside assistance at all. Brilliant. So, uh, of course, I don't want to plant the seed of any worry or doubt in anyone's mind, yours, Tracy's, or any listeners. But when we talk about the North Atlantic and the passage across the Atlantic, you know, it's not far off our coast, the Titanic. I mean, what kind of preparations does this vessel have for some of the seas you might encounter? Right, so the boat can be completely locked down within a matter of seconds. So I can seal it down. So it's basically almost like a survival capsule. Um, it, I've got a full body harness in there. I've got probably more navigation and safety equipment than I have on my Mini Transat race yacht that I race all around the world. Um, it is packed full of safety equipment. So it's got everything on there. And then when the storms come and we from modelling over the last 10 years, we've looked at it's going to be probably about five storms, depending on the time scale. I just literally have to batten down the hatches, close all the air intakes and ride it out. And she's designed to do it. She's been she's been in some heavy, rough seas um, and she's fine. It's, it's just like being on a roller coaster um, in a wheelie bin, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, well described. Andrew, how can we follow your travels? Uh, so if they go onto Facebook um, or in, uh, sorry Facebook or YouTube, it's Big Sea Atlantic Challenge, and then if they go onto Instagram, it's just Andrew Bedwell. Andrew, yeah. may you have fair yeah. winds and following seas. Well, well, all we need now is customs to clear the vessel. So we're waiting currently. Um, the boat's in Argentia, and uh, we're waiting for customs to clear the vessel, so I can uh, load up the boat, get food on, and uh, get it in the water. Safe travels. Good man. Good luck. Brilliant. Thanks, Paddy. Thanks, Andrew. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Andrew Bedwell, British sailor, attempting to cross the Atlantic Ocean over the course of 1,900 nautical miles to Cape Lazard in the UK in a one-metre boat. Amazing stuff. Let's go to line number six. Joan, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? Oh, good, thanks. Enjoying this beautiful morning. Good. Yes, yes I'm calling this morning. I felt I had to call to uh, say a big thank you to two gentlemen that helped my daughter there last Thursday. Okay. She was uh, on her way to St. John's and uh, got around Salmon Line and anyway ended up with a flat tire. So these two gentlemen, they saw that she was in a bit of distress. So anyway, in the meantime, she had to pull over and and stop, certainly. And anyway, she was trying to decide what they were going to do, she was going to do. And uh, they stopped and uh, helped her out and put the dummy tire on her, on her on the car, which enabled her to get back to the garage for how to get the tire replaced, right? So it certainly saved her a bit of time and a lot of stress. So I felt I had to call and... Uh, and say thank you to these two gentlemen. They didn't want to take anything. They didn't want to be acknowledged in any way. So anyway, I hope they're listening. They know she know who they are. She was unfortunate. She never got their name. So anyway, a big, big thank you from us. It's good people out there, John. Oh, for sure. And hopefully they heard this, and they, I'm sure if they did, they appreciate your kind words this morning. Thanks a lot. Oh, yes, I had, felt I had to do it. We were very, very grateful, and thank you so much. And I hope we can, everybody continues to help each other because that's what we need to do, isn't it? Absolutely right. It's a bit of a standoff out there these days, and it needn't be that way. Good on you, Joan, right. for calling. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, and I love your show, and uh, take care. You too, Joan. All right, bye-bye All right. now. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Talk away. Welcome back to the program. Considering we were just talking about uh, mariners and their vessels, let's keep it going. Go to Leonard Ford, say good morning to our friend from the Wooden Boat Museum. That's Jim Dempsey. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. <clears throat> yeah, I listened to that article. That's, that's very interesting. It's uh, the next in many crossings from here to there. Um, <clears throat> and I have to give him credit. He deals with smaller boats than we do. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't do it. I would be absolutely terrified. I mean, I would be happy enough to try to cross the Atlantic in a big ship, even though that would probably give me pause for concern as well. But a three-meter vessel? I mean, just picture it in your uh, Pardon me, a one-meter vessel? Picture it in your mind's eye. It's really legitimately getting on top of a buoy that would be identifying where your fishing net is, putting a staff and a mast, uh, pardon me, a mast and a, a sail on it, and off you go. I don't know, boy. Good for him. Well, it sounds crazy, but uh, this is the best time of year to do it. Yep. Anyway, I'm calling today because uh, it's opening day at the museum. <clears throat> and uh, we're uh, struggling a little bit with staff, so we're going to be open five days a week, uh, certainly for the next uh, month or so. And uh, But everything is open. Um, our <clears throat> new activity center and the Society of United Fishermen Lodge will be open. Uh, Jerome will be in the boat shed. Uh, we're offering a lot of uh, workshops and hands-on activities this year, and uh, we're getting a lot of subscriptions for that. Uh, we'll be building four dories uh, as uh, experience uh, sessions for uh, would-be builders. And uh, as I mentioned before, last time I called, one of them, uh, one of those workshops is going to be exclusively for women. So um, we'll be building boats. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to to a good summer. Is it a seasonal concern trying to get staff? Or an annual concern, pardon me? Um, it hasn't been so much in the past, but uh, I, I attended the Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador Conference in Gander uh, in March, and uh, human resources was a real issue. I think I think everybody in the tourism business is having some trouble with this. 
And uh, where we are, you know, quite frankly, there are fewer and fewer young people. Um, And uh, it's, it's, it's becoming a struggle, yeah. You know, you would think that that would be probably, if I interpret things correctly, that's your target market too, right? Is younger folks, especially like when I go to the rooms, I think it was the grade six program that you'd see Jerome in, uh, walking them through the construction of a punt or a Rodney or a Dory. I can't remember what they were building that day. But that is that your target market or are you simply, you know, trying to expose all ages to our traditions and our relationship with the sea and building of our boats? Well, we're th- I'm thinking in particular about students uh, for, for summer employment. Um, but we cover all ages. Um, we find that uh, um, everybody has something to learn when they come there. With regards to the, the young folks, uh, we have two sessions, uh, Thursday afternoon and Sunday afternoon, uh, which are do- uh, devoted to kids 5 to 12 years old. And they, they have a great time. They In the end, they make a little boat themselves and they take it down to the shore and play with it in the water uh, it's it, it's it's a lot of fun uh, but <clears throat> you know with regards to uh target uh, audience we're, we find we get people from all across the country from the united states last year we had uh, three very experienced traditional boat builders who were passing through from the states and they really really appreciated what we had to offer so um we're hopeful that a visitation will continue to increase. We had our, our peak of uh, visitors in 2019, and then, of course, it went downhill. But uh, in 2022, we were about 80% of where we were in 2019, and so we're expecting more people this year. Do you have any sort of understanding about how many people come through the door and they were simply curious to see what you had to offer and then enrolled in one of your workshops? Uh, yes, that has happened. Um, and when you talk about driving by, um, we tr- in an effort to make the building more visible, because it's really just an old white schoolhouse um, and with the signs on it, we installed large-scale murals on both sides uh, indicating tr- traditional boat activities. It's really quite co- colorful. And across the road, uh, we have the replica of John Guy's um, Endeavour, uh, which is painted in museum colors. And so... It's hard to drive by now and, and not see us. And the people who have dropped by, uh, have, as you say, have come back and uh, registered for workshops. Uh, they've told their friends. Um, the kids' workshop is a real winner with the parents, and so they tell their friends. And so um, even though we're in kind of an isolated place, uh, um, we're pretty well-known. No doubt. I mean, I think it's brilliant. Uh, last one. You know I'm curious about this one. Uh, is the boat in a box fully developed or ready to roll? Um, no, we have we built the prototype, and we we've, we've actually taken it a, a little bit on the road. Um, we were at the Down Home Expo uh, earlier in the spring, and we took it to Beaconsfield Junior High School, um, and um, I'm hoping to take it to the Marine Institute on um, June 8th uh, for Ocean's Day. So we're still showing it off. At the moment, we're doing a market feasibility study uh, that should be finished uh, early in June. Uh, if anybody is interested in the project, uh, they can go to our website, and we actually have a, the first thing you see is we need your input. You can fill out a questionnaire, learn a little bit about the project. Uh, so it's progressing, but, uh, you know, 
this is a new venture for us. We're a museum, we're a heritage organization, and this is starting to become business. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I should have elaborated. Boat in a box is pre-cut parts to build a full-size punt. That's correct. Right. Jim, always great to have you on the show. Final thoughts? Final thoughts? Um, I like to think that we're, we just keep getting better. Um, and uh, we're trying to, uh, with other partners, we're trying to make Winterton a destination uh, on the uh, shore of Trinity Bay. Uh, and, of course, the um, opening of Trinity Hall, uh, Great Wells' um, uh, re repurposing of the uh, Anglican Church there as a music center is only going to help the area. I think the area is lucky to have someone like Greg come come to town with his, I mean, just his background in pop music and Grammy Award winner. I mean, I think that's amazing what he's doing. I'm looking forward to speaking with him, as a matter of fact. Uh, Jim, have a great season. Thanks for this. Okay, Patty. We'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Jim Dempsey from the Wooden Boat Museum. Let's go to line number one. James, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Best kind to you. Oh, uh, number one, a little bit stiff from uh, past weekend. Uh, Me too. I like to give a, <laughs> I like to give a shout out to um, our karate club, uh, Killick Coast Karate Club. Uh, we had nine competitors off to Halifax the past weekend, uh, all of different ages groups uh, up to my age, which is well pushing fifty. Uh, we had nine competitors, and we uh, at the Atlantic Championships we took home a grand total of fifteen medals. And I'd like to give a well-deserved shout-out to all of our club members and especially our sensei for uh, all the hard work and training that he put in and uh, helped us all do so well. Who's your sensei? Uh, his, his name is Kim Fitzpatrick. Um, he, uh, we, train, uh, we train out of Japan. Our top, uh, Kim is a local boy like myself, but um, our training comes right from Japan, from Soke Sensei, whose father is the founder of our style of karate, which is uh, Chido uh, Ru Karate. Amazing. How about you? How many medals did you come home with? Uh, I was lucky enough to come home with two silver. Good man. In what disciplines? Uh, I came in a uh, 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 silver medal in kata and a silver medal in kumite, which is fighting. Yeah, so it was silver in combat. And inside the world of kata, at your age and whatever, what belt, belt level do you have? I'm I'm brown, hoping to get my black uh, within the next within the next year or two. So, what kind of kata are you doing? I mean, I can rip off an elbow kata pretty good. Uh, ours involve a lot of lot of kicks and punches, and so um, basically, like most of our katas, they're kind of uh, teaching you to uh, manipulate your opponent's strength and uh, momentum against themselves. It's really an art form. You know, martial arts can indeed be the combat. You know, you can look at Bruce Lee, but inside the world of kata and the choreography and the flexibility and even the strength on display, even though you're doing something solo, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, it was absolutely amazing. It was just great to be up there uh, to compete. And we had a couple of kids there as young as seven. And uh, when it came to the fighting part of the tournament, they were just like young wildcats. And they, <laughs> they, were, they, they, they loved it. And they were hungry. They were hungry to win. And uh, three of our uh, five kids came home with a medal, and it was uh, very proud, uh, very proud uh, just to be a part of it and uh, watch watch those kids grow and watch their confidence build, and it was just fantastic. If anyone ever wants to join uh, karate or any form of the martial arts, I strongly recommend it because it's so good for the the body, the mind, everything. Absolutely, my boys were involved. I used to really enjoy going over to the dojo. Uh, last bit of a somewhat silly question, but I think it's on point. You know, even when you watch a kata or in combat, it's not just the physical movement; it's also verbalizing the movement. So people will think that it's all about hi ya or all of these types of things, but it's actually part of it. Oh, one hundred percent. Because that little higher at the end. 
that gives your brain the last little push to say, I can do just, it just, it just automatically comes to you after so much training. That the little key eye, the high at the end, gives yourself that much more momentum and it makes you feel better about your punch or your kick or your elbow. Uh, it makes it look better. It makes it sound better. It makes the judges look at it more. It's just absolutely fantastic. James, congratulations to all involved. That's a great medal haul to all the folks from Killick Coast Karate. Good to have you on. Thanks, Patty. Have a good day. You too, buddy. All the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, someone better not cross me in the hall. Maybe a one-inch punch coming. down. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Terry, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi there. Oh, thanks for taking my call, Patty. Happy to do it. Oh, best call. Patty, uh, I'm in a kind of a situation here. Uh, I moved out of an apartment building there last week. I'm in a shelter trying to get a spot. Okay. And, uh, Teddy, I fit this roadblock. I was talking to uh, a lady at the minister's office. I won't say what minister or whatever, but uh, she was very helpful. And uh, the apartment building I was in, Patty, I noticed that uh, they have a lot of empty apartments, and people that are coming looking for apartments are telling them they have none. So I asked the superintendent before I moved out. He said, uh, my buddy he said, uh, that apartment was rented, he said, a year ago. And he said, I said, there's no one into it. No, he said, uh, the society is uh, buying up the apartments here, and they're empty for, like, between uh, 6 to 12, 18 months. So uh, me and my uh, three friends got on the phone the last two days, and uh, they know a lot of people in different buildings around the city. And when we call them and people say, yes, my darling, there's lots of apartments here, call this number. I called uh, eight different apartment buildings, and each one told me there was absolutely no apartments available. And I said, that's the funny thing. People in your building are telling me, like, there's 8 and 10 and 12 apartments. So what's happening? They're, uh, the Society for New Canadians are buying up these apartments, and they're vacant for, like, 12 to 18 months. And this is why I'm hitting a roadblock. Everywhere I go, I cannot get an apartment. I got all my furniture. I don't need nothing. I just need an apartment. And I, I think I don't think that's the whole reason, Patty. But I'm certainly that is some of the reasons. And, like, all these people can't be wrong saying that, in their buildings, there's lots of apartments. And when I call these people, they tell me, don't call back here for no, there's nothing here for you. I'm just wondering, like, is this going on? It's going on, uh, going on in the building there that I was in uh, previously around uh, Babel's Road. And the superintendent told me, he said, we got lots of apartments, but they're empty. But he said they're paid for for months and months and months and months. And people like me cannot get a look in nowhere. And uh, I, was, I mentioned it to... Uh, the minister's secretary yesterday, she said, Terry, I had no idea this was going on. I said, my darling, it is going on. And I said, this is not only me. I'm sure there's lots of people in my situation, Patty, that are hitting these roadblocks and calling these people, and they got barrels of apartments, and they're barred up and waiting. You know, and I just don't understand, Patty. And I'm going through all the like the right, right things to, to housing and everything. I'm at 300 on the list. But I'll never live long enough to get into a housing, apparently. And uh, but like I called everyone, and everyone told me saying there's no apartments, but there are apartments there, and they're empty for months and months. Yeah, I'm sorry that you're having a hard time finding an apartment. Did you say you were coming out of a, a shelter? 
I'm in the shelter right now, my brother, actually. Oh, you're in the shelter now waiting for a place. Okay, just want to make sure. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, of yeah. course, if you're in property management and someone says, I want to rent that apartment, as long as the check clears, they're probably not too concerned if anyone actually inhabits the apartment, but that doesn't make it any better for people like yourself who've got the furniture, got the money, just waiting to find a spot. Uh, I know people that are in that property management game. They generally respond to me when they hear these types of calls. So if we right. can help point you in the right direction. I know one guy in particular that he's always willing to share his contact info. If he reaches out to me, myself or David or someone will call you back and give you some info. Well, appreciate it. Penny, I appreciate you so much giving me a call, taking my call. I just wanted to put it out there because like the, the girl at the, the minister's office, she had no, no idea. And Like if it's happening in the building that I was in previously, it got to be happening in other buildings. And it's just, it's so frustrating. You know what I mean? I know there's apartments there in the, these buildings. And they won't even give you time of day to talk to me. Well, that's unfortunate. And hopefully we're going to be able to point you in the right direction to get you somewhere to live. And so I'm just assuming that you're looking for a spot in St. John's. Yes, my boy. And I look like I'm a 58 years old, Patty. I'm single. i got no pets. And I just want to – got a, a bunch of beautiful furniture, which is in store each now. And uh, I'm just trying to find a spot to try and go in and lock the door and live comfortably for the few years i got left, to be honest with you. Terry, I've, I've got a number for you. I knew this guy was going to reach out. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to put you on hold. I'm going to get David to share the number, okay? God love you. Thank you so much for your time, Terry. I appreciate it. Time, Terry. Good luck to you. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks. Uh, just very quickly before I go to the next call. Uh, okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Joyce, you're on the air. Hi, Patty, me boy. It's been Hi, a long man. time. Welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you. How are you? Doing okay. How are you doing? Okay, that's great. Great. I've got a problem, and I need an answer. Okay. I've been dealing... I'm not allowed to mention the bank. The guy who put me on uh, hold said I'm not allowed to mention this bank. But I've been dealing with them about 40 years, if not more. Everybody at the bank knows who I am. I haven't had this problem before. It's only the last few times I went to the bank. They're asking me for my driver's license before I can do anything, and I'm at the wicket, right? So I, even if I want to use my debit, i got to give my driver's license. And I've talked to quite a few people, and they don't have that problem with their banks. And I'm not getting an answer. It's like pulling teeth out of a hand trying to get to talk to somebody there. So uh, I'm wondering if there's anybody else having this problem because it just doesn't sound right to me. I've never been asked for my driver's license at the Wicked. And what happens if someone doesn't have a driver's license? You don't get to yeah, do any Yeah, exactly. So why do they need it? I mean, there's so much uh, crooked things going on and stolen identity and this and that. I don't like giving him my driver's license every time I want to go to the bank. Yeah, and of course, I don't know if there's much info on your driver's license that could put you at risk, but I suppose if they simply have your date of birth and where you live, that's the beginning well, of a potential that, problem. Yeah, they do. When did this start? This started, oh, about a month ago, I guess. Strange. I'd be curious to know as to why that began. Yeah, and so would I, and I asked, and they said they had to do it, and I mean... Doesn't make sense. I talked to my daughter. I talked to my sister-in-law. They're at different banks. They don't have that problem. Yeah, I don't at my bank. It doesn't, it doesn't sound right. So when they said they had to do it, they didn't bother to tell you why they had to do oh, it? Oh, no. And my daughter said, Mom and my sister-in-law, you should check into this. I mean, it doesn't sound right. 
Yeah. You know, and I tried calling the bank. It's like pulling teeth out of a hen. You can't get anybody. They put me on hold for the mainland, and I was talking to a gentleman. I told him, if I don't get answers, I'm going on the talk show. And he said, give me a minute. He was gone about seven, eight minutes, and then I got hung up on. So you can't get anywhere. It's the same when you call a lot of places. You know what the problem is, though. Yeah, it's this one's a little bit odd. Comes out of left field for me, but there's such a an entity as the. Uh Banking Ombudsman of Canada, you can call them. They deal with all sorts of complaints regarding any react, any interaction with your bank. So maybe they, they're somewhere where you can ask a question about uh, why it might be done, what you can do about it, or what maybe they can do about it. Because if something changed within inside a month, I don't know if there's anything nefarious going on here necessarily, no, but that's one listen, place you can turn. I don't owe the bank any money. No. I Everything is paid off. All I have to pay is my utilities, so I'm one of the lucky ones. But uh, as for them wanting my driver's license, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. It just doesn't. I don't know if it puts you at any real risk, but, uh, I mean, you're the customer. Not you're the thing. client. It shouldn't be, Patty. You're okay. there to do Fair your enough. banking. I have my debit card. I never had problems before. No, I know. I'm going to give you a number if you want to take well, it up Well, hang on. I'll go inside. I'm out just watching the gulls and the birds eating the birds eat. <laughs> hang on now. No problem. Yeah. Watching the gulls. Oh, yeah, I got that. Oh, my God, the dogs, I tell you. How many dogs you got? Uh, I got a little chihuahua who never shuts up. <laughs> and I got another one. I forget what uh, breed she is, but she's on the last leg. She's ancient. Oh. Um, and I have a lot of pet slugs in my garden, Patty, every year. I kid you not. A lot of what, sorry? Slugs, you know those big long slugs? Oh yes, there was a grub or a slug in my driveway yesterday. Or I know, the day I heard on the radio. Yeah, it was massive. Well, I'll tell you how many I pick up. I use my pooper scooper, <laughs> and on the pavement in the night, is nothing for me. I picked up as many as 50-something. I'm not kidding you. And the only way to get rid of them is throw them in my pond. You have 50 slugs a day on your property? Uh, not in the day, in the night. They come out at in, night. Yeah, in the course of a 24-hour period, yeah. In and you night. can't touch them because the stuff they elude, like the slime, it's poisonous. <laughs> Is it? Yes. Yeah. I heard it on um, TV. Oh, geez, that was quite a while ago. They were talking about these things, right? So uh, I know... Uh, a person I know uh, happened to pick up a hot dog off her barbecue, and that was a couple of years ago, and one was on it, and it got slime on her hand, and her hand was burning, and it was on fire. So. That's some superhero powers those slugs got. All right, I won't pick one up. I wasn't tempted to pick one up to begin no, with. No, I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I just got a street hockey stick and swatted it off to the grass. You got a what? I just got a hockey stick and swiped it over to the grass. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I pick him up with the pooper scooper. I got to. There's so many. And I hate to drown them, but, Patty, I haven't got a choice. Why, they can't swim? Uh, no, they oh, drown. They just sink. So, so an emailer says your account was maybe flagged as potentially at risk. But, anyway, if you want to take it a step further, get some answers, I got a number for you. At risk? Yeah, I don't know what that might be or not, Joyce, so don't worry about that part. Got oh, a pen? Paper? Uh, can I have your number? I'm giving you the number right now. Yeah. one eight eight eight. Yeah. 451. One, yes. 4519. 
4519. And this is an ombudsman? Yeah. Uh, can I say anything about the government or do you don't have time? I've got a minute for you to say something about the government. Okay. Isn't it great that uh, Trudeau is such a crook that he can doesn't have to answer to anybody? He's a dictator. I told you he was in bed with the Chinese, didn't I? <laughs> didn't I? You know I did. Yeah. And uh, what's going on in schools in Calgary? Uh, the schools also, the libraries, I mean, they got men naked doing pole dancing in a library with parents and their little no, children there. No, they don't. Yes, they do. It was on the news. Uh, people were up in arms, and a uh, priest went in to say something like, this is not right, and the police came and took him out of it. Yeah, we shouldn't have naked people in schools, regardless well, exactly. of exactly, and I don't know what kind of parents they are, but I, if I had small children, mine are all grown, they certainly wouldn't be going to that. Uh, what did you think about the Dalai Lama and what he did? With that little boy. Yeah, something about licking ears or something, was it? I can't remember. Oh, put his tongue in his mouth. Oh, it's had the tongue in the mouth. Yeah, also inappropriate. It uh, doesn't matter what faith you belong to or your role or life uh, stature or status in this world. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, we can have people not say those things, not do those things. It's perversion. For every obvious reason. It is. It's perversion. Okay, before we go, Joyce, uh, also, apparently, if you use salt, it'll take care of all your slugs. A couple of grains will do away with them before you have to murder them by drowning them. <laughs> murder them. Patty, I'll tell you what. What? I got birds here, I got squirrels, I got chipmunks, I got weasels, and they've had their babies here. I've been feeding them for years and years. Yeah. And if I do that, they might pick that stuff up and eat it. Yeah, that's not good. Listen, oh, I really, I really... And I'll tell you something else. There was a slug. I get a lot of toads because I got a pond there. Okay. Uh, there was uh, a toad with one of these uh, slugs wrapped around it. And what a job I had to get him off the toad. The poor toad couldn't move, and he was wrapped around him big time. I had to shake him loose with the pooper scooper, and it took quite a while. Well, listen, Dr. Doolittle, I got to go. Very okay. quickly, <laughs> what, what do you call your weasel? Do you have a pet name for uh, a weasel? Because I seen him steal the baby chipmunks that were born. I seen him going with two. Okay, I thought you were going to be quick enough to tell me that you named him Justin. Why is that? Forget it. <laughs> Good luck, Joyce. Yeah, I need right. all the luck I can get. You have a lovely day, Patty. You Thank too. you. All the best. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the emotions, the jubilation in St. Mary's with the reopening of their crab processing plant. About a year ago, they had a parade when they finally got a license. Then, of course, the standoff. Now she's open. A couple hundred people going to work at the plant in St. Mary's. Verna Hayward, she's one of the driving forces out there. Don't go away. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five, Verna Hayward, you're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty, on this beautiful sunny morning. Good morning to you as well. Welcome to the show. And the atmosphere in here is very sunny. Well, it's so it should be. And I mean, it, it's the stark contrast of a year ago versus this year when the boats were tied up. I mean, a parade going down Main Street or down the main road to this year in a big black cloud hanging over the community. Just describe what you're hearing and seeing. Oh, it's really exciting. And it has to be. Uh, and I have to throw a huge bouquet to Mayor Steve Ryan of St. Mary's. Uh, Steve has been on council for 25-plus years, so he certainly knows uh, the ins and outs of the fish plant in that area. Uh, but we all stand to benefit the whole region 
and even beyond. I mean, we have uh, workers from Mexico that are getting employed here. We have workers outside as far away as Clark's Beach. We have people as far away as Portugal Cove South. So, I mean, it's just amazing. It's good for the province, really. But it was exciting last night to go up and take pictures, and the lights are on, and everybody's working. It's it's uh, it's optimistic, and it's hope for this lovely region that we call home, and that you uh, uh, you uh, you're from there. Your roots are from. So I just want to thank you, especially, because you never ever said no to us calling. You always let us talk, and we could talk for ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Whatever we wanted to talk to you, you are, you never let us, uh, never stopped us from getting the uh, news out, and all the media actually, because the TV media, uh, the written, the telegram, everybody was there today. We had the rally, so I just want to thank you, Patty, because most times we're calling you with negativity, but today it's a, it's hope. And look, it's a big deal, you know. This is not just about the one crab season. Like maybe in some maybe more rural, remote parts of the province, if there was not. Out of, uh, a crab fishery executed this year some people who live in the community might say well I don't have that I'm running out of EI I'm going to have to go somewhere to get a job and the problem is they might not come back Oh, exactly. So, I mean, like, the, you know, the Daly family were very happy that they pursued that plant, and it's state-of-the-art, apparently, uh, and, uh, you know, it's bigger things to come, really, like the sauce plant that will get dealt with, and uh, these people, I'm sure, will put in a, a state-of-the-art wharf eventually so that they can come in and uh, unload their catch right at the wharf. Uh, but, I mean, it's just amazing. It, it, you know, it's, it's all good, good news that's needed for Newfoundland and Labrador, period, you know. Uh, I mean, like, because of the demographics, uh, we have to rely on people from outside our country. But whatever, you know, I mean, there's still lots of local people benefiting and lots of local businesses and whoever benefits. Like, it's just it's just amazing, and and I really appreciate everybody that was involved and whoever made this happen. Uh, the levels of government, uh, Sherry M. Walsh, or MHA, and uh, you know Minister Bragg, as much as we lack head sometimes with him, and uh, Premier Fury was involved. So whoever made this happen, uh, there might be people we don't know, but like whoever, like it, it happened. And last night and yesterday, we started, and so it's up from here. Yeah, I, I think it's brighter, certainly brighter uh, emotions in the communities like yours now that everyone's back on the water and back in the plant. I said 200 people working in the plant. That just popped out of my mouth. Is that the number? Yes. Okay. Uh, according to Steve, uh, who's very involved and, and uh, has been very, very welcoming to the people from uh, Mexico, like this whole area has, like many people have welcomed them with open arms and shared winter clothes with them because, as we know, they didn't need them where they come from. Um, he, told, he quoted the figure 200 to me. It's good news, Verna. So there was lots of people I think deserve the credit here between residents like yourself and Mayor Ryan and others. There was a big deal to get the plant back up in action or the license back in action last year. And here we are finally going to get to work. Great exactly. stuff. Love exactly. it. And I really thank you uh, for, and VOCM for allowing us the opportunity to speak publicly about such a worthy cause. Love it. Thank you for your time, Verna. Thank Berna. you very much. Enjoy your day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about
the Placentia lift bridge. Remember that when they had to replace it and the contract came back way above the estimates that government was providing, then the amount of time it took to do the work on the lift bridge in Placentia. Noella's next, and then it's you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Noella. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How about you? Not too bad. I just got a just want to voice my uh, concern, disgust, and uh, on the lift bridge in Placentia right now. Uh, I just came across the bridge. I travel the bridge a fair bit. I'm out for a hike right now, but I wouldn't walk across the bridge because the walk pathways on the bridge haven't been swept in, I would say, a few years. And I stand to be corrected, but they are very unsafe for uh, a person on the walking path of the bridge. Both sides haven't been swept, and it's very easy for somebody to slip on uh, the the large amount of rock that's collected on the bridge from uh, the winter. Also, on each side of the bridge, uh, the the roadway has uh, a few, several potholes. Some have been temporarily patched with what looks to be like cold patch. But now the warmer weather's here and things are lifting. The, the ground is finally gone. We got two mega holes on each side of the bridge. And it's been there a while. It seems like every day we go across that bridge, we're running into a lot of uh, potholes on bridge on both sides of the bridge, which is a shame because the money that was put into the bridge, there should be at least another forty, fifty thousand dollars to put to put aside to, for the potholes that are apparent on the bridge. Tour season is uh, in swing here in Placentia right now, and it's pretty bad when you got people who are spending thousands and thousands of dollars, not only in vehicles, but also in their motorhomes and having to take a chance to come across that bridge. Not only to mention their danger and the damage that is doing to the vehicles of the locals, because you hit one pothole, guaranteed something's going to loosen up on our vehicles. And this is why I always say I'll never buy another new car living in Placentia because it's the state of the roads here. And I know it's across the province, but it seems like cold patch is the only answer for Department of Highways these days. And uh, I think they need to really look at what they're putting in the roads, as I call it, the ingredients. Because you go down to the U.S. Naval Base in Argentia, those roads have been down there, I don't know, 60, 70 years. And they are probably just as good as the day they were put down as they are today. But it seems like uh, it's not it's not matching with what the Newfoundland, what the Newfoundland government specs are right now. And it's uh, pretty uh, disheartening to know that you know we all you know the money that was put in that bridge. There has to be some money poked aside for the general repair and upkeep and and that around. I would suppose. Yeah, I mean, you needed your PhD to navigate Dunville before they did a bit of road work back there. And PhD is a lame joke because the acronym is Pothole Dodger. So that's the high road. So that's the uh, the provincial department. That's their responsibility. I wonder whose responsibility is to clean up the bridge. The bridge, to me, would be the would be the government, the government structure. And I know that the town of Placentia, being past councillor, 
that, you know, sometimes the town of Placentia had to take on the initiative and sometimes we had a, an agreement with the Department of Highways to do some of the work. And because I know, like, you know, sometimes it's hard to keep ahead of it all. But, like, you know, when you look at it, the amount of money that's, that's put in roads and they're crumbling underneath our feet. And, you know, I, I call it the garbage inks right in the middle of the night ripping up the roads again. You know, the little those little animals and all that must be doing some some screeching on the pavements to be ripping up the amount of potholes that we get here in over a 24-hour period is kind of... You know, it's not nice to look at. And it's not just, you know, the the government roads. I mean, our local roads are, are the same thing. I mean, we have we have some. And, I mean, I know that I see the crews out around and working on on the, pa- the, the patches and trying to do it. But, like, sometimes you just got to put that extra money in. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure the provincial government has a cooker. Uh, I call it a pavement cooker in their uh, depots. And they can certainly haul that out with a few workers. And there's no disrespect to the workers because those workers are only working with what they have right now. It's the higher-ups that make the plans and spend the money and budgeting. Like, you just can't budget on 20,000 bags of uh, coal patch per presidential lift bridge in a run of a, a year or two years. You have to put the money in the pavement. You know, it's... it's uh, it's sad to see, but like I'm just hoping, pray that you know that the the powers that be that be um, you know take a look at it and get somebody out here in the next in the next short period and get this this mess straightened out on the bridge. Like I said, tour season is started. That it is. And, you know, Before I go on the where are you going on your hike today? What are you doing? Right, right now I'm in a little spot up on Castle Hill, sitting on a rock, looking over a pond. Even though we shouldn't be using Castle Hill out of season, but I find this area is kind of like uh, a nice mental health walk. It's a challenging walk at times. I'm, uh, when you look at me, you wouldn't say I'm a hiker, but I mean, I love my hike and I, I like the mental break of it all. And it's uh, I do a lot of walking down around Argentia and, you know, I go everywhere. Wherever I see a path, I'll try. You know, I, I've, I've been known to get wet on my hikes and, you know, but it's uh, certainly a day for it. Sun is shining here, a little bit chilly, but not too bad. It's not as bad as it was last week, but, you know, it's, it's looking up. Let's put it that way. Well, I hope you enjoy your hike. I appreciate your time this morning, and hopefully someone gets out and fills in those potholes better than a bit of cold patch and, of course, uh, sweeps off that bridge, which I imagine has got to be the responsibility of the Department of Fisheries. Uh, good to have you on. Have a nice day. Okay, and Patty, also, uh, like I said, it's it's no disrespect to the to the workers of the Department of Highways, the the the, the labor man, that's sort of woman. You know, it's not, it's not their fault. They only work with what they have, and I know that they hear a lot of complaints and commentary. I mean, you know, it's it's just us being human, but that's it. But anyway, I'd like to send out a a big thank you for the work that they are doing. Like they can only work with what they have, and. Uh, Hope everybody in the province has a good day. Enjoy the sunshine. Same to you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Ski Pro, let's go line number three. Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Doing great. You? Great. Uh, It's good to hear about all the uh, slugs and maple saplings coming up. Um, It's definitely a a good sign of spring. And, uh, you know, things are greening up on the farm as well. I wanted to call you today about uh, the Livingstone Long Chill neighborhood and still some ongoing trouble that we're experiencing down here. Um, 
So there on Saturday, there was, we woke up to looking out the window and there was uh, an attack on an individual with baseball bats and pepper spray. Uh, four guys jumped out of a car and started beating on somebody. And uh, it, it's, it, it was quite scary. It was a scary, scary moment. And, you know, this is still an ongoing thing in this neighborhood. Um, lots of issues with drugs, addictions, mental health. Um, and I would really like to see an end to it. I saw your social media post about it. You mean, I don't, I'm not in the business of generalizing and every single issue is from the same root cause, but in that neighborhood, and if you go back over the years, people who live there telling the exact same stories about the exact same people in the exact same houses and nothing seems to change. And a lot of it, of course, will be based in whether people want to point the finger at poverty or mental wellness or mental illness and or drugs, whatever it is, everyone knows what's happening. Everyone that lives there knows what's going on. They see it with their very own eyes every single day. Children and their young families afraid to just be out in, enjoying the neighborhood and go to the park or whatever. They're scurrying to their car. They're scurrying back to the main streets to get away from the danger. And yet nothing changes. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly doesn't feel, I don't feel comfortable in, in my neighborhood. And it's a sad state and it's a sad situation when somebody would have to say that. Um, it's, it's scary. Um, I think, Patty, like, you know, in that tweet that I sent out, you know, I sent it to a bunch of people, including ministers, um, Minister Abbott, Minister Hogan, um, MPs in the area, like they're, they're, the mayor, Danny Green. We, we, we know that, like, the, the city has received federal funding uh, for what was guns and gangs. I, I believe it's – I forget what it's called now um, – but we really need this dialogue to start. And, uh, you know, I certainly recognize it's a, it's a complex issue, but we're just not, I mean, last year there was 200 people a day going to a crack house down the road, basically like a, a drug house. So, I mean, we're just not seeing the, the dialogue starting and it's got to start. So I, I'd like to call on these folks to do something about this to start this dialogue and to be, to begin having that conversation about what we're going to do about it right now, our neighborhood is just being uh, like, there is nothing going on. There's no, there is no communication. There's no dialogue. Um, we even had a, uh, a working group with all the folks from government, from Eastern health, from housing, um, that we're meeting with a couple of us here in the neighborhood to sort of address some of the issues, but uh, it didn't really go anywhere. We could have, you know, through that working group, we could, uh, we could still really, we could still build something that is, uh, that will have some impact. How to address some of the issues with these landlords that are um, really, you know, benefiting from enormous, probably, higher than market rents that they're charging to house vulnerable people. And yet there being not enough support on the other side of it for these folks. And, uh, you know, and on, from the community perspective, um, oversight into how these houses are being used. So Patty, are you aware of like a housing uh, takeovers? Meaning what? 
property owners just going around buying up what they can to turn them into rentals? No, meaning that organized crime is is, oh. is basically choosing is is going to folks who are vulnerable, who are hard to evict, who who um, who are in their places, um, and basically setting up shop and selling drugs out of their out of their units. What stands to reason? I mean, there's no disputing that there's organized crime and an element of that's infiltrated the province and has for a number of years, the, to the extent of which I don't really know. But what you just said makes sense. I would imagine also, like, for instance, if I'm not a member of the Hells Angels or whoever, and I own a piece of property there, you know, I would imagine there's a sentiment in some people's heads that even if I go down the eviction road, what happens with the retribution? Is this property going to be firebombed? Or are they going to know who I am and come after me? Because I know someone who owns some property. Well, I'm going to leave out the uh, neighborhood. But they're kind of worried about approaching this, evac- this eviction notice that they're about to serve because they think that there might be something on the other end of it. Yeah, I mean, for sure, there, that, that might be a, a warranted fear. Um, on you know on the other side of that, if we had if we had public housing, that uh, that you know the opportunity being that there was supervision or some kind of um, some kind of you know so, somebody looking into what's going on, then that might not be such an issue, and that might open up some of the housing that we you know that we know we need in this city as well. Quite possibly. Uh, so hopefully between the, the coalition of citizens in the neighborhood, of which I know several, and for the city itself, which does play a role, and of course law enforcement and other issues regarding root causes. There's got to be a village here to deal with what is not just a localized neighborhood issue where you live. It's something that can rear its head in many, par- many parts or pockets of the city or in many pockets of the province. I appreciate the time, Mark. Would you like to say anything else? Thanks, Patty. Yeah, I, I mean, the, it can rear it can rear its head elsewhere, and and it does. Uh, we know that it's happening across the city, but this area has just it, it's been an onslaught uh, for geez, it must be like close to 10, 12, 13 years, and we're just not getting anywhere. And so we need these we need the mayor, we need the ministers. Uh, and the provincial government come together and, and find a solution that gets us somewhere to at least start that dialogue in a real way. Um, so I, I hope that no other community and nobody has to deal with this. Um, and, you know, I have to say this is the, the, the residents of this community that, that I've known over the, what, 13 years that I've lived here are wonderful. There are a lot of wonderful people, but we are just, we are overpowered by the problems, the ongoing problems that are going on here. I appreciate this this morning, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, getting some reaction. I'm surprised, well, somewhat surprised, that we haven't had people who wanted to come on the program live to talk about things like foreign, uh, foreign interference into the elections. Look, it's a big subject, and a lot of it's pretty lofty stuff, no doubt about it. Someone's taking me to task about how I characterized David Johnson's appearance in press conference yesterday. And he did not say the words, trust me, but that was the implication, clearly, is that you'll just have to trust me. 
basically that's how it comes across because no doubt about it a lot of the information that is privy to members of CSIS or uh, NSACOP or the other security agency and or the Prime Minister or David Johnston we're never going to get to see it regardless if you think uh, that the Trudeau liberals are good bad or indifferent towards them that doesn't matter because some of the information we're just not going to get to see it it's classified and classified for a reason so I didn't say that David Johnson said you'll just have to trust me that's the clear implication is that I saw what I saw and here's my interpretation and da 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 now Again, and someone's saying, well, you know, why would I rebuff the idea of a public, public inquiry, which, of course, is not the case, and it's not the truth, and I've never said anything even close to that. In fact, right from the get-go, when these stories started to break, I thought that the only end result that would be acceptable to most will be some form of public inquiry. And again, off the top, I said clearly, oh my God, no, is even if that happens, and there's a justice at the helm, and the right to subpoena, and compel evidence... A lot of it would still happen in camera, behind closed doors, because they will be talking about things that could compromise the government, could compromise the intelligence agency, and could absolutely do a lot to harm the integrity of and faith in democratic institutions like the election. So I do still think the public inquiry is still the best political option, but I'm not even sure how much more information we would glean from it, to be honest. But anyway, you want to talk about that? You can join us probably tomorrow because the last word goes to line number one. Minnie, you're on the air. Patty, you know, I've always been interested in that subject. <laughs> uh, when it was started first, I called a number of times on that, and I realized you didn't have a big crowd on this morning uh, all the time, so I thought I'd give you a call. It's been a busy show, actually, but go right ahead. I know it's been a very busy show, but I, that's one of the reasons I didn't call before, right? Okay, what's on your mind? Uh, but uh, I think it's a big mistake not to have a public inquiry and it helps nobody. It just makes people, I think, angrier still. Because I've, uh, he came across to me, I realized uh, people were saying how wonderful he is and he's this and he's that. But I thought he came across as very arrogant. I mean, Ooh. in the States, the Mueller report, if you can remember that, okay. look how uh, expertly that was done and had everything to do with uh, intelligence. And he kind of made it sound, Patty, as if we couldn't have one because of that, because of intelligence. We could not have a, a, ju a judicial inquiry, right? That was his main reason for not having one. Well, and uh, okay. I thought it was a very arrogant statement to make. I thought he had no other choice, to be honest, but to come back and have that inquiry. All the opposition parties, every single one uh, wanted it, and it seemed like a slap in the face to them that they didn't get it, right? Well, opposition parties will want what the government is not willing to deliver. Oh, That's absolutely. Basically works. But I don't think this is going to help Mr. Trudeau, Oh, right? absolutely not. But, you know... Because he'd been better <laughs> off, even if... Uh, if, if even if... Uh, uh, he didn't want uh, to have one. Uh, Trudeau, for his own sake, would have been much better off had he come out and said, well, yes, I realise he, he didn't recommend one, but I'm going to call one, let you know that nothing went on here. And uh, because I can't see how 
any of this make makes any sense. I mean, I was listening to Tom Mulcair this morning, and Tom Mulcair said, how can he possibly say that there was nothing with the ministers when, in fact, there was something with Bill Blair? And by making that statement that the ministers did nothing, uh, everybody knew Bill Blair was in a position where he moved another person into another office. Someone has to take accountability for it, uh, um, Patty. I mean, it's a serious uh, problem, isn't it, that we got that going on in our family. All the, the Chinese people, God bless them, all wanted an inquiry, and that alone would have been reason to have one, because these people feel that they weren't even bothered listening to until they got these leaks, right? So, Patty, I think myself, I, I hope this is not over, because I think if you did a poll at this stage, 90, 95% would want one. And I hope somebody do do a poll, because uh, it was, to me, it was almost like a slap in the face. Like I said, I don't know how anybody else found it, but that's how I found it, right? Fair enough. And simply because it's 11.59.55, yes. we'll have to say goodbye. But thanks for this, Minnie. Thanks. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.